G'day, mate. 40 here. It's so easy to get caught up in our own problems, to just be completely overtaken by our own self-absorption, that uh, we hardly ever spare a care for what other people are going through. So, like our own self Imagine you're a Mormon missionary, and you're at church. So you think, oh, church, that, that's going to be a safe space, right? I don't have to worry about anything bad happening to me while I'm in church. And then bloody hell, the next thing you know, you're kidnapped by a beauty queen and forced to engage in sexual intercourse with her for three days straight while she feeds you your favorite foods. I mean, it's pretty easy to stay strong like the first time. You know, some beauty queen is trying to have sex with you. But after she's already shackled you and held you down, and now it's like the fourth time that she's having it off with you, not so easy to stay strong. But have you ever have you ever said a prayer for Mormon missionary Kirk Anderson? I mean, this poor guy was kidnapped by former beauty queen Miss Wyoming winner 1973 Joyce McKinney. She was arrested by police after allegedly kidnapping Mormon missionary Kirk Anderson from his church and forced him to be her sex slave for three days. The world is such a more dangerous place than we like to think about, all right? Our, our conscious mind works in a way that we, we don't think about the dangers that confront us. Like, when I'm walking down the street, my head's often just buried in, in, in a book of Torah. So I'm walking down the street... And next thing I know, some beauty's queen could be like holding me up at gunpoint and, and taking me off to some cottage and then shackling me to a bed and then just spread eagling me and then just having her way with me. I mean, it could happen to you. Like it's happened to people. And so I've been thinking about how do we, how do we avoid getting taken as sex slaves? I mean, this is one of the, the major moral issues of our time, but it, it hardly ever gets talked about. Like, nobody, nobody seems to care about the male sex slave, right? Like, there are these beauty queens that just waiting around behind every corner. In 1977, former beauty queen Joyce McKinney made headlines when she kidnapped Mormon missionary Kirk Anderson and turned him into her sex slave. As you might imagine, the so-called case of the manacled Mormon made headlines all over the world. While kidnapping a missionary is certainly one of the crazier things Joyce McKinney ever did, she has made headlines for other behavior. So, today, we're going to take a look at the bizarre life of manacled Mormon mastermind Joyce McKinney. But before we get started, be sure to subscribe to the Weird History channel and let us know in the comments below what other plot of a movie. But in reality, it all started in a fairly ordinary way. Joyce McKinney first met Kirk Anderson in the mid-1970s when they were both students at Brigham Young University. This could happen to you. University in Utah. She was studying for her doctorate in drama and had recently converted to the Mormon religion. He was an undergraduate and just 19 years old while she was... She says she has an IQ of like 168. Okay, this woman was doing a PhD in drama at BYU. 25. They became romantically involved and reportedly had a romantic liaison at least once. McKinney later claimed this encounter led to a pregnancy and a miscarriage. Anderson, who was conflicted about the whole thing, went to his church to express how he violated his religious beliefs about waiting until marriage before having sex. Subsequently, he decided to leave the country and didn't tell McKinney where he was headed. This is where things start getting weirder. Because in what... And, 
And have you ever said a prayer for this guy? I mean, think about what she did to his soul. I mean, think about how she imperiled his prospects for the afterlife. Think about how she interfered with his relationship with his maker. Do you think that she got in between him and his higher power? I would say so. But but does anyone care about that? So Errol Morris did a terrific 2011 documentary on this story called Tabloid. And uh, he interviews Joyce McKinney at uh, some length. When I met my crook, it was like in the movies. When the girl comes down the stairs and their eyes meet, when Juliet looks at Romeo and it's, that's how it was. Wow. He had the most beautiful blue eyes and the sexiest smile, and he always had the cleanest skin. I mean, you can see why you'd go crazy for her. I mean, let's be honest. The guy's a serious looker. All right, this is this is just the type of bloke that a lot of women just go crazy for. He's about six foot three, about uh, three hundred pounds, and just look at that beautiful skin. So, I think I can understand why she was losing her mind. Kirk Anderson was a very big, rather flabby, 300 pound, six foot three. Yeah, but there was just so much love there. There was just so much passion underneath that six foot three, 300 pounds of flab. And I don't know, Mormon, Mormon women in particular are often very attractive. Not athletic or attractive looking man in the accepted sense of the word who had a very shuffly kind of walk. The last person in the world that you think would be the. So this is Peter Torrey, who was a gossip columnist for the Daily Express. The, the object of this kind of strange sexual passion. He had known Joyce McKinney in Salt Lake City, and she had fallen in love with him. Fallen in love with him, become obsessed by him. Because that's another thing about Joyce, his obsession. I mean, he just obsesses about things. I don't know what the details are. Okay, so you're on Tinder, you're on J-Swipe, you meet someone at church who just becomes obsessed with you rather quickly. All right. Uh, <laughs> warning sign, warning sign, warning sign. All right. The more obsessed someone becomes with you, uh, the odds are the less they have going on in their life. And while it can initially be quite intoxicating and enthralling, it uh, generally tends not to work out too well. Of Their relationship was in uh, Salt Lake City, but they obviously had some kind of romance or love affair, because if one's to believe Joyce at all, uh, he had promised her a family and children. He actually told me he loved me the first night I met him and asked me to marry him the second night. Yeah, well, if that happens, it must mean he means it. And then the next thing I know, we're naming our kids. And we were going to name them all with J's and K's, J for Joyce, K's for Kirk. Okay, so you're getting a sense of crazy. All right, this happens on a first or second date. Uh, not a good sign. Joshua, uh, Jacob. You know, we had the names picked out. Kyle, Kirk. Yeah, so that happens to you. Probably a, a good idea to run. 
staring like he's catching flies, looking at the window waiting for him to come back. <laughs> so she goes to England to uh, kidnap him out of the He got in the car and he goes, how long have you been in England? Like a robot. He was almost speaking in a monotone voice and he go, they said you didn't love me anymore. It was like he had a personality alteration. Kirk. So it's not uncommon when people become more religious, they often seem to undergo a personality alteration. I've known this in particular with Christians, not so often with Orthodox Jews. So Jews I've known who were angry and then became Orthodox were still angry. Jews who I knew were kind and sweet and then became Orthodox, they remained kind and sweet. But Judaism is primarily a religion of behavior. Therefore, it allows you to be more true to your emotions and to your passions. Christianity is primarily a religion of the heart. Therefore, people can have like a genuine change in heart and it seems like their personalities change. Number one and Kirk number two. Kirk number one was the man I fell in love with. Kirk number two was cult Kirk. According to all the reports of the time, he was driven 250 miles. Right, he was driven to a cottage. And then the things that were done to this man in the cottage are just absolutely unspeakable. He is an ex-Mormon. Doing something wrong. I went back in the kitchen and I got myself a real cold glass of water. Does he still have the erection while he's chanting? Well, I came back, <laughs> to be continued, I came back in there and I'm thinking, am I doing something wrong? He started to cry. He had ejaculated, I guess. He said, please don't tell him about the filthy place. What happened at the... I, I mean, I, I got to admit, I always cry at times like this too. The filthy place. And I said, honey, what's wrong? He goes, they'll know. I mean, every guy on the planet masturbates and has wet dreams. And I asked him, I said, honey, don't you have those dreams guys have or whatever they're... I remember this uh, woman I used to date said she wanted to take me out to dinner to make amends. And so we went out to dinner and she she was in AA and uh, she was I was on her amends list and she apologized for, I don't know, one time that she'd taken a Valium in addition to wine and just like passed out and I didn't know what was going on and I kind of freaked out. And uh, I think she enjoyed provoking my jealousy various ways and so we were a couple of love addicts a couple of narcissistic love addicts in a relationship it was predictably turbulent and uh, she went through the you know fairly s small list I mean she was overwhelmingly just good and kind and wonderful to me I have, I have no complaints about Holly no complaints about Holly Randall and our, our brief liaison in 2006-2007 and uh, so then we have dinner and then we go then I take her to Temple Beth Arm. It's a conservative synagogue for Shavuot. She wanted to go to synagogue, see what it was like. So we go to Beth Arm. So Shavuot, right, Friday night. Uh, it's not a Friday night. It's Shavuot. It was a Sunday night that year, I believe. And the tradition is that you stay up all night studying Torah. And so there are all these Torah classes at uh, synagogue Beth Arm. And like there was at least one guy there who, who recognized her. And so... Yeah, I got to share some Torah with, with Holly. We had uh, quite a nice evening. And in the course of it, like just human to human, I had confessed that when I was tempted to masturbate, this is a long time ago, this was like 15 years ago, like an image of my rabbi would come to my mind and I just couldn't do it. Or when I was like tempted to look at porn, like, you know, my, my rabbi's kind of 
sad, disapproving face would just come to my mind, and, and I couldn't act out that way. Like I, I thought about how much my rabbi had put his neck out for me. I thought about how much surus my rabbi had endured having me in his synagogue. I thought about all the hours he had studied Torah with me. You know, I thought about how much he'd sacrificed for me. I thought about how much my rabbi believed in me. And then here I was, you know, about to, you know, violate my covenant with Hashem and just like, just be totally gross and, and you know, start cruising pornography on, on the internet. And, and I just, the rabbi's face would just haunt me, haunt me. And like, sometimes my, my evil, wicked lust would, would overcome me. And, but I'd still, I'd be haunted by the visage of my rabbi. And so Holly goes and takes this and turns it into a column in, I think, Xbiz magazine uh, called Even Good Jews Masturbate. I hope it's still not available online. So she gave to me to make amends. And boy, she really, she really stuck the knife in. But I, I can't complain because... I wrote her about her quite a bit on my blog, and I didn't always clear everything by her. So I guess what goes around comes around. Oy vey. One of the more embarrassing times of my life. Yeah. I mean, there was some... Who's the, who's the great Jewish poet who went to a fairly rigorous yeshiva, and uh, then he left it to become a, just a secular Jewish poet at the turn of the 20th century? And his, his rabbi at the yeshiva told him, yeah, you'll go out there into the secular world, but you won't be able to enjoy it. And so that's the thing when you have a serious relationship with religion, it changes you. Like, so even if you relapse and you become secular and you become a hedonistic uh, pleasure seeker and, you know, you start looking at the porn and you start chasing the shiksas, you can't really enjoy it, Right. If you have a serious fling with Orthodox Judaism, meaning building tight bonds with, with say, particular rabbis who you study Torah with for, for hundreds of hours, and then you go out into, into the world, you can't really enjoy your sins. I mean, yeah, you can still commit the sins, but you can't enjoy them because you still feel the presence. Like, if you've encountered a truly holy man, it changes you, right? You, you just... Uh, you just can't go on, you know, just the same way, completely indifferent, right? So there was there was a great novelist, uh, Chaim Potok, who wrote The Chosen and uh, some other novels about growing up in Orthodox Judaism. And he would go to a lot of the talks and the, the celebrations led by the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And the Lubavitcher Rebbe offered to meet with him, but Chaim Potok declined because he was afraid that getting that close to holiness it would inhibit his ability to write freely. Because when you participate normally in Orthodox Judaism or any traditional society, you start forming incredibly close bonds with other people. And so it then becomes much more difficult to leave the community or to act in ways that would bring shame to the community or would appall people with whom you've, you've built these bonds, people who vouch for you, say vouch for you through the conversion process, people who stood up for you, people who had you at their home for meals, people who danced with you, people who set you up for shadukim, like dates or matches, a possible match to, to get married, people that you've, you've worked for or done business with, that you, you've celebrated simchas, you know, happy occasions in Judaism, that you've been together in, in sad occasions in Judaism. 
and you form all these tight interlocking ties, and then you have some genuine experiences of the transcendent. Right? You form genuine bonds with, with mentors in, in Orthodox Judaism or whatever traditional religious community you're in. And then it's really hard to walk away from those ties because when you have that level of intensity of connection with other people, you'll tend to carry it with you wherever you go. And so you may fry out the, the Yiddish word for being free, free of the obligations of the commandments of God, but it'll be really hard to enjoy your sins. God, he goes, yeah, but I didn't tell him in the interview. I go, what interview? They talk to you about this stuff? He goes, yeah, once a week, they take us in rooms by ourselves and they say, M1, M2, M3, M1, M2, M3. I go, what's that? Masturbation once, masturbation twice, masturbation three times. So many times you're out, you're extra home, you're off your mission, you can't get married in the temple. I go, Kirk, these people are controlling your sex drive, they're controlling your mind, they're controlling your food. You can't have coffee, tea, or Pepsi Cola. There was a Christian marriage manual which I bought which explained sex to two young virgins. There was a section in there on sexual impotence impotence i-m-p-o-t-e-n-c-e and it says sometimes if so look i need you and you need me to try to stay safe from sexual slavery like it could happen to anyone but if we watch out for each other i, I think we'll be in much better shape and if you are tempted to pry out right if you're tempted to engage in self-abuse if you're tempted to cruise pornography on the internet now i hope my concerned and pained visage will, will come to your mind and prevent you from sinning. And maybe your your seat seat, your fringes will fly up and slap you across your face or your your uh, Mormon underwear will, will protect you from these carnal urges. A guy was very repressed sexually, which poor Kirk was, Lord knows, that you could tie the person up and they could say, oh, I'll let go. You know, I can finally let go and make love. And so I went and I read that section yeah, this woman really did get a PhD in drama. It's real, bro. It's academic. It's at Brigham Young University. Really quick. <laughs> Speed read it. So Mormons make a lot of great movies. Well, I mean, I'm told that they're pretty good. Uh, probably helps if you're Mormon. But uh, they are into movie making. I, I know the Seventh-day Adventists have at least one uh, satellite channel. So a lot of these traditional religions have embraced the media for for providing spiritual sustenance for their flock and to try to attract converts. <laughs> and I came back and I said, honey, we're going to try some of these exercises. And so we did. We made love actually for three days. We sort of like didn't get out of bed. It was a honeymoon. That's what it was for me. This could happen to you, right? If we're not careful, this, this, some beauty queen will come along and carry us into sexual slavery. Wow. I wanted us to have a good sex life. I wanted to be a good wife to Kirk, and I wanted to, to give him lots of babies in my tummy. I didn't look at sex as a bad thing with him. I looked at it as a melting of two souls. Because when he kissed me, it was like we melted into one person. It was like I didn't know where I stopped and he began. Hmm. We were lying there holding hands and his little missionary glasses. were. Okay, so enmeshment, it sounds wonderful, not knowing where you stop and other people begin. But take it from me, I've been in that state many times. It leads to absolute misery. So one of the first things that happened when I started going regularly to psychotherapy 
in the spring of 1998 is that my therapist gave me a handout on boundaries. And that was the first time I think I'd heard about the term and the concept of boundaries and becoming clear about where I and other people begin. So I was like way over boundary with a lot of people. I would share inappropriately. I would be you know, overly physical. I remember I heard secondhand, I made one girl cry because I was hitting on her so aggressively. Uh, I would say inappropriate things, a, a kiddish, so the Jewish celebratory occasion on the Sabbath. So out of control, no boundaries. And learning the concept probably helped a little bit, but it was actually years and years and years later when my whole central nervous system calmed down through doing 12-step work, particularly with regard to love addiction and sex addiction and porn addiction. So when I calmed down, then, then boundaries started to develop naturally. We're kind of askew, and he goes, guess we're married in God's eyes. I go, yep, we are. He says, guess we better make it official. He said, let's go into London and let's get married. We took the rental car and we went into town, to London. And we saw Trafalgar Square. They had like pigeons. We fed the pigeons. And so I said, oh, Kirk, we've got this cool cafe we want to take to. It's called the Hard Rock. Right. It sounds like an amazing love story, right? I mean, what, what could possibly go wrong here? Most people would agree is a minor violation of privacy. McKinney proceeded to hire a private detective to track Anderson down. When she found out he was in England on his Mormon mission, she followed him there with a friend named Keith May. McKinney confronted Anderson on the steps of a Mormon church. Holding what appeared to be a real gun, she marched him to her car where she and May used chloroform to knock Anderson out. They then drove to a rented countryside home in England. There, she reportedly handcuffed Anderson to a bed with mink-lined handcuffs. Where do you get mink-lined handcuffs? That's the real misery. McKinney left Anderson tied to the bed for several days. During that period, she had intercourse with him several times, and later she claimed that he agreed to marry her, which she seemed to believe was a decision he made on his own, instead of as a prisoner held at gunpoint. After three days, however, Anderson was able to free himself and flee. Mink handcuffs must not be that secure. From there, he went straight to the police. After talking with Anderson, British authorities arrested McKinney for kidnapping him. But in a twist that might seem somewhat shocking to our more modern sensibilities, she did not face harsher charges. In fact, under British law at the time, there was no such thing as a sexual crime charge where the victim was a man. When McKinney was out on bail awaiting her trial, the young woman embraced the British tabloid who, in turn, embraced her right back. There was a worldwide news frenzy, and the media nicknamed her Madame Mayhem. Instead of facing justice for the crime she committed, she actually made a significant amount of money selling her story to the tabloids. She appeared on the covers of the Daily Express and the Daily Mirror at the exact same time, each with similar stories. The Daily Express reportedly paid her £40,000 in cash for her tale, the equivalent of roughly 225000 So this could happen to you. Some, some beauty queen could capture you, have her absolute way with you, do everything she wants, you're just manacled there, helpless, spread-eagled on the bed. And then, then she cashes in. But what about your neshama? What about your soul? Maybe she crushed your soul. Okay, this is in Devon. And uh, I was at, at, a, at a church member's house. And there were so this is a terrific 2012-2011 documentary by Errol Morris on Joyce McKinney and her escapades. It's called Tabloid. We're a younger couple, and they sort of sat down and told us the whole story of Joyce McKinney and the Manacled Mormon. It reminds me of those, of, of those cultures that have stories of the vagina of dentata, the women with the tooth of vagina. They become cautionary tales about sexual impropriety, the dangerous powers of women. 
women that can seduce a young missionary who are on God's errand. A young man, once they receive what's called the Melchizedek priesthood, they're endowed with power from on high. They go through, we go through. Hey, did Melky get the Melchizedek priesthood? I mean, our friend Casey, uh, Godwin's podcast, didn't he get Melchizedek's priesthood? I went through an elaborate uh, endowment through the Mormon temples where we received uh, sacred uh, underwear and uh, sacred uh, knowledge of keys to heaven. You reenact the Garden of Eden scenario and there's an actor that performs Lucifer. And he says in a menacing tone, those of you who don't live up to the covenants that you make on the altar of the temple this day will be in my power. And one of the covenants that you make is the law of chastity, that you will only have sexual relationships with he or she to whom you are legally and lawfully wedded. Manacled Mormon sex slave wrecks that, doesn't it? Completely wrecks that. If Kirk Anderson was a willing manacled Mormon, he will have violated his temple covenants, violated the law of chastity. What he risks is excommunication from the church and greater than that, unless he repents, he won't be able to ultimately become a god. Yeah, so sure, three days of crazy sex with, with a beauty queen. Sure, on the face of it, it could sound very enticing. But what if you get excommunicated from your church and you never get to become a god? Then, then I mean, those three days with the beauty queen just by comparison seem like nothing. And have his own planet. You don't even get your own planet then. As Mormon theology, that's what they're working towards. I got this weird phone call. I had an answering service. It said, it's been really crazy here, but I finally got them off my back. I still love you. Call me urgent. Epson 25724. Urgent. Well, the police don't really buy her story. She, she's arrested. She's in prison for, for three months. Like down slave, she would say to him. Down slave, down slave. But which you say it's humorously joking, but but it did occur to us at the time that this is all the language of the world of bondage. I I, mean, I, God I speak forbid. as if I'm an expert, but I mean God I assume forbid. as you are. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's all this kind of master mistress power thing, domination thing that seems to run through this whole story. It seems to be a theme. Keith had probably an obsession for Joyce, just like Joyce had an obsession for Kirk. The fact that he was just able to be around her and helping her where he could satisfied his emotions. And this could happen to you. Yeah, watch out. There, there are, are tabloids out there. in England that are filth. Filth. At the top of the list would be the Daily Mirror. Okay, so... <laughs> This is classic. There are tabloids that are out, out there that are filth, but does Meryl Streep end up in the tabloids all the time? Uh, do, do 
you know, God-fearing, hard-working people who keep their nose clean end up in the tabloids. What kind of people get ridiculed on Kiwi farms? What kind of people get ridiculed in the tabloids? People who are behaving badly. If you don't behave badly, not likely to be the object of mirth and scorn and ridicule in the tabloids or in life in general, right? When you are a pompous ass, when you hurt other people, they will respond. So, for example, let's say you're in your office and you're playing something on your computer loudly, so it's interfering with other people, right? Nine times out of ten, they won't even bother to tell you because it takes strength and energy and it's aggravating. And who wants to deal with the, the positive or negative side consequences from, from telling you that you're you know harming other people? But if you're playing something so loud that it's annoying, interfering with what other people are trying to do around you, you are harming them. And 90% of the time, people won't even bother to tell you. And then that 10% that of the time they tell you, if you react by hating them and, and blowing them off and escalating, right, you're going to go into a negative spiral. So every time that someone reproves you, and particularly if they're accurate, just think there are 10 more times where you have behaved similarly badly but no one's had the energy to confront you about what you're doing. So we affect other people. And when we get some feedback on the negative effect that we're having on others, then we need to be alert to it. The, the more simple approach, the self-serving approach is to think, oh, the problem's with them if they're making fun of me. But what have I done to put myself to be an object of mirth? The Daily Mirror had meantime had their reporters in Los Angeles digging up all this stuff about her uh, activities as a, as a, I don't know, not a call girl, but as a, as a, well, I suppose she was. I mean, she was, uh, she was being paid, paid. Yeah, so many years before she kidnapped this guy, she was a call girl, but no one ever had sexual intercourse with her. She would do bondage and she would give oral sex and she'd pose naked, but she would never have full-on intercourse. For sexual services. But this was all long before her uh, escapades in the UK. This, this was early, earlier Joyce McKinney history. They had a tip, I think it was from a police officer in London, to one of our London reporters who was covering the story. He said that it might be worth looking up an address that we know she had in Los Angeles. And So, yeah, she was essentially working as an escort. your hair and then give you a delicious nude massage on a fur-covered waterbed. Your fantasy is her speciality. S&M... B&D, escort service, nude wrestling, modelling, erotic phone calls, dirty panties or pictures, mail your fantasy or speciality to Joey. So she wasn't quite bit. so innocent after Joey all. says, I love shy boys, dirty old men and sugar daddies. I couldn't believe what I was Joyce saying. Joyce McKinney. I could not believe that that was Joyce not quite as innocent. those services. But that was only the beginning because once we had all of that, we then had to start thinking, who's got pictures of all this? Right, so the tabloids often do a, a public service, right? You can find, you can find uh, sections of, of the Talmud that says it, it's a mitzvah to expose hypocrites. It was only when he named that photographer. He said, I've never photographed Joyce McKinney. I have no idea who she is. And I said, well, to a friend of mine and a friend of hers, she always came on model assignments with her dog. Who would have thought? Ah. Who would have thought? He dug out some magazines. As soon as I saw it, I said, that's her. What? 
took that away. I thought, job well done. We were getting somewhere. So I often listen to modern Orthodox scholar Mark Shapiro, and he said once in a 2008 lecture for Torin Motion on the lives of the Godola, the great rabbis, he says, if you read my blogs, you'll see that I'm a relentless exposer of the fraudulence, not just in the Haredi world, but in the modern Orthodox world. It all needs to be exposed. But that doesn't mean that every single person needs to know. As Ralph Cook says, if they come into our world and try to affect us with their fraudulent stories, it needs to be exposed. But if they want to live by these boobermeisters, old wives' tales, that's the way of life. So only if it threatens to interfere in the wider community does it deserve to be exposed, unlike Rabbi Slifkin, Natan Slifkin, in this regard. So it's hard to know what Lashon Hara gossip is. You don't really know what Lashon Hara is. I've read many letters of Gedolim, and they are full of negative comments about other rabbis, which you would say, on the face of it, is Lashon Hara. They badmouth each other all the time. If you ask the Rav, he would say, it's not Lashon Hara. The Torah says you have to expose Hanafim, the hypocrites and flatterers. So this admonition to expose hypocrites is stated in Yoma 86b, where it is derived from the legal category of Hilul Hashem, desecrating God's name. So we are supposed to expose hypocrisy. So if you ask all these rabbanim, these rabbis who say terrible things about other rabbis who are great Torah scholars, and you ask them, they would say, no, this is not Lashon Hara because this rabbi is a fraud and I have to expose him. Now, it could be that he's not a fraud, and it's just a personal dispute. So I don't think it's Lashon Hara to talk about a dispute that the whole world knew about it and was in all the newspapers if a certain Rav did a bad thing. Now, there's a Rav, not a Gadol of the first caliber, but of the second caliber. He had a child out of wedlock when he was 17 and in yeshiva. About 20 years ago, one of the Israeli newspapers exposed him and published the birth certificate. I think that's a terrible breach of privacy, says Mark Shapiro. He made a mistake when he was young. I don't think it's anyone's business. I would never expose something like that. Now, if there was a case like this where he abandoned the girl, wanted nothing to do with him, and then he became a big scholar, a Talmud Hakam, a wise man in Gomorrah. I don't think that's Shan Hurrah. That would be an example of exposing the hypocrites. So Mark says, I try to balance Jewish values with secular values. As a secular historian, you go into a grave and you dig out the body if you need to. I'd have no problem as a secular historian if I was writing about a figure you know, who was, who was secular like Einstein, but among Gedolim, I don't do that. I can... Honestly, say I've never had to make that choice with Rabbi Yaakov Yechiel Weinberg. I'd rather not write about somebody than have to cover up something embarrassing. Certain great rabbinic figures I would treat differently than other figures. That's not in correspondence with historical analysis. What are they going to do? Take my tenure away? Life is not only about the historical craft. That's uh, Mark Shapiro there. So you're probably wondering, what does Tucker Carlson have to say? Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson. Tonight, it's hard to think of a topic in American life that's more divisive than abortion. Abortion's in the news today, obviously, but most Americans, no matter where they stand on it or how passionately they feel about it, don't really want to talk about it because it's just too painful. So with that in mind, for once tonight, we're going to open this show with an issue that unites all of us, and it's democracy. Everybody in America is for democracy. Democracy is the basis of our political system. Both parties support democracy strongly. They often say so. And of course, the alternative to democracy is bad. It's tyranny, and nobody's for that. So it's heartening to learn that preserving democracy is the main idea, really the only idea, behind Justice Samuel Alito's draft opinion on the Roe v. Wade decision. Virtually everyone in the country has heard about Alito's 98-page opinion since it was leaked on Monday night to Politico. And yet at the same time, for all the talking about it, almost nobody seems to have any idea what is in it. Nobody's actually read it. Partisans on television keep describing Sam Alito as a hater, somebody who just hates women and hates rights. 
a sadist whose only pleasure is extinguishing human freedom and happiness, both of which, of course, are predicated on abortion. That's what they're saying about Alito. Now, we're not familiar with Sam Alito's soul, so we can't confirm or deny this other way. But we can tell you, having actually read his opinion, that there is no hint of any of this in what he has written. In fact, there's not even an attack on abortion. He could be pro-choice for all we know. Samuel Alito merely argues that Americans have the right to vote on how abortion is regulated. And for nearly 50 years, Roe versus Wade has prevented voters from doing that. It has taken that right from them. That's it. That's the sum total of the supposedly controversial opinion by Samuel Alito. And if you don't believe it, here's how that opinion concludes. Quote, the Constitution does not prohibit the citizens of each state from regulating or prohibiting abortion. Roe and the Casey decision abrogated that authority. We now overrule those decisions and return that authority to the people and their elected representatives, end quote. Now, as a factual matter, not that facts seem to matter too much, but if you cared about them, you couldn't really argue with that claim because the Constitution does not, in fact, prohibit American voters from banning abortion, or for that matter, does not prohibit American voters from legalizing abortion because the U.S. Constitution doesn't mention abortion or allude to it in any way. And anyone who claims that it does, as the Roe decision claims, is lying to you. Read the document for yourself. It's online. So why exactly is everybody so mad at Samuel Alito? It's strange because what Alito is proposing here is the very definition of democracy. We've got a bitter disagreement, in this case over abortion. Both sides have a case to make. They can take that case to the public. In the end, the public gets to decide who's right by voting on it. That's called self-government. Since when is that scary? Well, since one side decided that self-government is too risky and had to be eliminated. Now, they couldn't say this out loud, of course, because as we told you... Right, so populism means that you believe in the virtue of the people. Progressivism, leftism, means that you believe in rule by elites. Now, elites and leftists and progressives and communists and socialists, they don't want to say they are against the people and they don't believe in the virtue of the people, so they have to get all mealy-mouthed about why we need rule by experts. So let's check out this video here, Dissecting Apologetics for Islamic Sex, Slavery, and Conquest. We've got very different perspectives today. Uh, let's see how far uh, they diverge or where they agree. It's kind of a mystery so far. But before we begin, I want you to think of the following as you listen to their explanations of such controversial issues in Islam. Number one, is he answering the question? Number two, is he using unnecessary words excessively? I mean, we all use some filler words here and there, but you know what I mean. Number three, is he using whataboutism? That's when you point to other things and you say, what about so-and-so, rather than actually addressing the point. And number four, is he using the third person excessively? We'll see what I mean there. Uh, and one more thing, this is a bonus just for Dr. Shabir. He keeps saying classical thought, classical thought. I don't want you to be tricked into thinking that classical thought means some kind of school of thought that was dead a thousand years ago. No, this is the consensus today. Uh, what I'm looking for in his videos is some kind of new perspective that is from the Quran, because his channel is called Let the Quran Speak. So we will let the Quran speak as always, and we'll see what the Quran says about such classical thoughts and what are the non-classical thoughts that should replace them from the Quran, hopefully. So, yeah, um, thank you for being here. If you'd like to support me further, links are in the description, all that stuff. Uh, it's just a little heartbreaking to have to uh, have to dig after these men who get paid to spew this nonsense. But let's let's see what they have to say. We'll start with Dr. Shabir's video called Slavery in Islam, Sex, Slavery, and Concubinage. Let me know if the audio is all good. We've spoken about slavery before. I want us to revisit that topic because I feel like, um, and I think we both felt that way, that we hadn't completed 
talking about it. And there were some unfinished questions that we need to answer. And uh, one of those is about, you know, agency and ownership and the fact that, you know, in the Islamic uh, classical law, it seems like one can own a slave. So can you talk to me about that a little bit? Yeah, and uh, this is rooted in the Quran itself. But uh, to put that into perspective, it's important for us to, again, recapture uh, the, the overall uh, approach of Islam to the question and the problem of slavery. At the time when the Quran was revealed, as we have surveyed among the world's uh, ancient uh, religions, well, the world's um, major religions, which mm -hmm. have ancient roots, we, we've seen that uh, the religions uh, generally do not uh, uh, condemn uh, the institution of slavery as... So from the beginning, he says, yes, it is based on the Quran. And by the way, what about all the other religions that do not condemn slavery as an institution? Go ahead. As an well, the other religions take place in history, right? So everything takes place in history at a particular time and place. And until about 200 years ago, slavery was just the way the world worked. And you may not like it, but it was just rooted in, in the human condition. The strong take the weak and force the weak to do what the strong want, right? That's how the world generally works. The strong take what they want, the weak endure what they must. It's the nature of reality. Now, you could say, oh, religion should protest reality more. But uh, you're not going to have much effect when you deny reality. What you can try to do is ameliorate, take some of the rougher edges off, maybe encourage people in a different direction, but it's pretty hard to outright ban things that are just become the nature of reality. Wait, is that mentioned in the Quran, that other religions don't condemn uh, slavery? I don't think that's mentioned in the Quran. On the whole, uh, but in various ways, various religions have tried to make amends to the uh, difficulties that slaves were going through, and uh, there are some accommodations uh, for uh, a better life uh, for, for slaves. But And of course, we've seen some very harsh rulings as well uh, from some of the world's uh, religions regarding um, how slaves might be treated. Mm -hmm. uh, now, it, with that background in mind, it, we should see that... Uh, Religion isn't magic. Religion can't come into reality and just completely transform it. Right? At most, it can nudge people in a, in a different direction. It can start to provide some precepts that, that, for example, in Torah, that make slavery just such a pain that Jews, by and large, had abandoned slavery 2,000 years ago. Right? Jews, Jews stopped earning slaves about 1,800, 2,000 years ago. Because, for example, the Torah command, if you've only got one pillow, you have to give it to your slave. If you've only got you know, one jacket, it has to go to your slave. And what's called slavery in the Bible is really more indentured servitude. It's not slavery like in the American South prior to the Civil War. Uh, the Quran was actually bringing about reforms in, in this whole institution. Mm -hmm. uh, first of all, uh, the uh, Prophet... So, yes, the Quran does endorse slavery, but it did bring reform, is what he's saying. Muhammad, peace be upon him, is reported to have uh, forbidden uh, for anyone to conduct... So this apostate Aladdin is shocked and appalled that an 8th century document is not up to date with 21st century morality. It's, it's naive and bizarre to think that a document written 1,400 years ago is going to be up to date with morality today and what's considered moral and immoral today. Dr. Slave uh, raid. Uh, so you couldn't go raid a tribe, seize their people, and make them slaves. Mm -hmm. Oh, how generous of you, Prophet Muhammad. You can't go to free people and make them slaves. That's just the, you know, tip of generosity right there. Uh, what he neglects to mention is that in any sort of conflict or war... Well, human nature is to take what you can, right? That's human nature. Human nature is to take free people and turn them into slaves if you can get away with it. Human nature is for the strong to exert their will to take what they want. And so to the extent that Islam or Judaism or Christianity has acted to to smooth some of the rough edges and, and to reduce the natural tendency of the strong to take what they want, I think that's a positive contribution to humanity. 
and this guy apostate Aladdin is condemning it for not living up to modern morality. Muslims are allowed to take the other sides of children and women as slaves, and men as well, but the women especially as a special kind of slave, which let's remind you of the title, sex slavery. So far, we're not talking about that specifically. But thankfully, Muhammad said, don't go to free people and make them slaves. So that by itself uh, would uh, dry up a major source of uh, the increase of the slave population. And if the slave population is kept as it is, and eventually slaves are freed one after another, uh, as stipulated in the Quran, then they say... So... Morality is profoundly affected by what's going on around us. Since about 1980, pornographers are often quite eager to tell you that uh, they have nothing to do with child porn. But when pornographers could get away with child porn up until 1977, up until Congress, United States Congress passed severe rules against child porn, you could get child porn in most every sex shop. Right. So the reason that the big pornographers since 1977 haven't dealt in child porn by and large is that they can no longer get away with it. So there are all sorts of things that we can't get away with that we may feel you know, virtuous about, but the reason that we don't participate in that bad behavior is that we can no longer get away with it. So the Me Too movement has reshaped sexual morality. So in the late 1960s and in the 1970s, there was... A lot of you know sexual free for all as we had the advent of the pill and the reduction of traditional sexual mores. Then there was a backlash of, of feminism, and a backlash of sexual harassment, and now an additional backlash of the Me Too movement, because just allowing men to have all the sex that they can legally exact from women, where they obtain you know legal consent, is not in women's interests, not in society's interests. So the coolly predatory sex life that many men would like to have is clearly antisocial and there's going to be blowback for it. The population itself will dry up. The one. Here's the problem with that. So he is trying to make Islam to be faultless in this. So he says this dried up one of the main sources of uh, slavery, but he neglected to mention that there were still slaves being bought and sold. So you could still buy a slave in Islam. That's not how, regardless of how they became a slave, that's not even in the question. You don't go to a slave. He's not a disinterested academic scholar. Right, this is a representative of Islam, so of course he's going to try to present Islam in the best light possible. Just like Jem Psaki, Joe Biden's spokeswoman, tries to present the president in the best light possible. Slave market in those signs and ask, "How are you enslaved, dear good sir or dear good ma'am?" Oh, okay, you were taken as a free woman. I cannot buy you. That's not part of the stipulation. And secondly, what happens to children of slaves? Now, there's a lot that can be said about that. I'm going to put links in the in the description. But in short, they don't just go free. So if it's the children of two slaves belong to the slave owner, so that's a new slave being brought to the world and so on. There's nothing haram or illegal Islamically in having slaves who make more slaves. Uh, there's If a man has uh, intercourse with his slave and she brings him a child, that slave... Look, all good people are slave to something. Everybody is a slave to something. Bad person, medium person, good, good person. We're all slave to something. So pretty much everybody has some kind of master. Right? That's just wired into the human condition. Now... I'm glad that the Western world has largely gotten rid of slavery, but I recognize how intrinsic it's been to the human condition until recently in the West, because the strong naturally take what they want. Child is supposed to be free if he owns up to it, and she is... Right, so this guy with the analysis is talking about what should be in the world, right? There'd be many wonderful things if we could fly. If we could have all the love we wanted, all the sex we wanted, all the fame and power, possessions, wealth, security that we wanted, right? We should be this. We should be that. 
And it seems like the imam here is talking about the nature of reality more than this secular critic. He's freed after he dies. She's not free while he's alive. However, if he marries that a slave, a female slave to somebody else, the children become his slaves. And he says that the only, like one of the biggest sources is taken away, which is literally just walking up to a tribe and taking them as slaves. So where do you find slavery in the world today? You do find a great deal of it in the Islamic world. So how merciful of you, Muhammad. And when he says that had people followed Islam the correct way, slavery would have eroded uh, or disappeared. I'm, I'm not putting words in his mouth, but that's basically what he meant. Then whose fault is it but the designer of such a flawed system who knows exactly how humans behave and knows the future? So to pin it on humans rather than the creator of the system is, uh, is short-sighted. One avenue that remained uh, was uh, prisoners of war because... That's not the one avenue that remained, as I've just demonstrated. Children of slaves are slaves. We have already explained uh, the earliest Muslim community did not have a prison, uh, a place to house uh, the prisoners of war, and uh, therefore the prisoners of war were distributed within the society as uh, domestic servants, and they did not have... Domestic servants is putting it lightly. You'll see a lot of sugarcoating in this man's words, domestic servants. Their uh, uh, full legal right as a free person, but they... Hold up, hold up, say that again. Were, ...were distributed within the society as uh, domestic servants, and they did not have their uh, uh, full legal right as a free person. That's putting it lightly. So they were domestic servants, and they didn't have their full legal rights as a person, as a free person. Just say they were slaves. Why, why are you trying to bullshit us? But they had every other legal right as a human and as a... Oh, they, they had the right to exist and eat and drink and sleep. That's plenty generous. An individual, uh, to the extent that the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, enjoined uh, on the persons who had these domestic servants, that they are to uh, feed them. Okay, you can uh, watch the whole video. I've, I've linked to it in this video description. So I was looking at uns.com, and Philip Giraldi is a regular columnist there. He's an ex-CIA officer, and you'll notice this with a lot of ex-CIA officers. They come out of their service for America with a passionate hatred for Israel, just a rabid seemingly you know, beyond all good sense, hatred of the Jewish state. So why does this so happen, often happen to people who used to serve in the CIA? And it's because they generally see America's support for Israel as strongly against America's best interests. They see United States foreign policy being severely warped by America's support for Israel. And so after feeling like they've been screwed around for several decades as CIA officers. They leave the CIA and go all anti-Israel. So Philip Giraldi's no exception. He's got a column today. Does Israel permit freedom of worship? Palestinian Christians will soon be extinct. Extinct. Well, the primary reason the Christians will soon be extinct to the extent that that's true in the Middle East is not because of the Jewish state. It's not because of Israel. Israel is not carrying out genocides against Christians in the Middle East. That's primarily being done by Muslims. So Israel has limits all right, on religious expression. For example, it limits, severely limits proselytizing. You really can't proselytize in Israel because proselytizing can very quickly become political. Right? You change someone's identity, you change in-group, out-group dynamics, you change the, the relative power of groups when you have sizable numbers converting from one religion to another, and that creates instability. So... It's just amusing. Philip Giraldi writes this column that uh, Palestinian Christians will soon be extinct when the primary reason that Christians will be extinct in the Middle East is not because of Jews and, and the Jewish state. And the column kind of reminds us that uh, diversity isn't always a strength. Right? Many nation states in the Middle East, they don't want a diverse nation. Right? Most people... 
most places in the world regard diversity as a severe weakness because diversity means that we don't have much in common with each other. So you would think that the more you have in common with your fellow citizens, the better off you are, right? That is homogeneity. That is the opposite of diversity. So the way the world works is that uh, diversity, generally speaking, tends to reduce social cohesion and social trust, right? It tends to make communities more unwieldy, to help uh, people to feel more afraid of each other, to feel less connection with each other. So the healthy way to go through life is to think about what you have in common with those you're interacting with. But the more you encounter diversity, the more incentives you will get to kind of keep your head down and stay home more and just watch television instead of, say, volunteering or getting out into the wider society. So you'll see in the United States, those cities that have the most volunteering are the whitest cities like Salt Lake City. And the more diverse the city like Los Angeles and New York, there's relatively low levels, social cohesion, social trust, and volunteering. People, they're going to volunteer. They're going to usually just do it to look after their own. And so the wiping out of Christianity in the Middle East is not really an exception in history. It's a very common theme in history that uh, not many states think that they're stronger states because they have a multiplicity of religions or multiplicity of you know, moral codes. The more you have in common with your fellow citizens, usually the stronger you will be. Dr. Mark Shapiro, scholar of modern Jewish thought, is doing a long series for Torah in Motion on the rise of Reformed Judaism and the Orthodox rabbinic response. So here he talks about a technique used by many Orthodox rabbis, they try to lard on the severity of the sin by saying it's not just a rabbinic commandment, rabbinic meaning made about 2,000 years ago, but a biblical commandment meaning coming from the Torah given at Mount Sinai, according to the Jewish tradition, about 3,000 years ago. He says, in my opinion, it is incorrect to say that you can raise the level of an iser. The Lomar of Iser Lotase Gredon, to say about a Lotase. So an iser is that which is forbidden. And so... Some Orthodox rabbis hold that you should not lie to try to promote observance of Judaism. Other rabbis hold, well, t telling a lie, that, that's really a small thing compared to the greater good of getting Jews to do a mitzvah. To tell people that even though it's a lotase, it's a lotase and an ase. And then he continues, he says, even though we see that uh, the sages, the Chassam's Umar says, uh, would exaggerate. We know that the rabbis exaggerate. The Rambam already says that. So, um, and he brings some example here, right? We see exaggerations, negative and positive. They say this is the worst sin in the world. They say if you observe this mitzvah, it's like all 613 uh, uh, mitzvot. Um, he says, that, he quotes the Rambam as saying, they did this, they did this to uh, instill upon people how significant it was. Uh, and uh, so it says, and there's things where they say that you're chayav misa, and it's like you worshiped idolatry. That we know already, that the rabbis would say it's like you worshiped idolatry, or it's like you fulfilled all the mitzvot, or it's like you violated the whole Torah, things like that. But then he says that. So, high of mitzvah means that you're worthy of death. So, it is a common form of rabbinic overstatement. These are just yumi mohafki. These are just ways of, um, you know, threatening people, instilling on them fear, not to violate. Avalomar, Isra is a Torah. But if you're going to tell me that an Isra is an Isra Torah, the Rambam says, and Elvis Mamrim, that you violated Baltosif. If you say to someone that a, a rabbinic commandment is a Torah commandment, you violated uh, Baal Tosif. 
which is a Torah command that you can, you're violating. And then you can't say it's a Torah. Then he says it's also you're violating the Torah, says to keep far from a false matter, even though you're doing. Right. So there are plenty of prohibitions in Judaism against lying, but everything has to be weighed up. So all, all values operate within a constellation. So there's the value of truth. And then there's the value of getting someone to do a mitzvah, these values that are in conflict. So Mark Shapiro published a terrific book called Changing the Immutable, How Orthodox Judaism Rewrites Its History. And chapter eight is titled, Is the Truth Really That Important? So what happened to the truth? Isn't, isn't the truth an important value in the Jewish tradition? If it is, how come so many people, many of them quite pious, justify their lying? So under normal circumstances, truth is an important value in Judaism. So you've got all these, these biblical verses and rabbinic verses praising the values of truth. Now, Ibn Ezra, who was a medieval Jewish commentator, he says, even on occasion, prophets will tell untruths. And he gives an example of Abraham, says to those who accompany him, and he intends to offer Isaac as a burnt offering, I and the lad will go yonder, we will worship, and we will come back to you. That's Genesis chapter 22. So Abraham was not yet ready to tell Isaac and the others the truth, and so he uttered a falsehood. Ibn Ezra notes that had Abraham told the youth, told the truth, Isaac could possibly have fled. So the whole issue of truth-telling in the context of Jewish law comes to the fore in a dispute between Rabbi Moshe Sofer and Rabbi Zvi Hirsch Hayes. So the issue that precipitates this was the question of delayed burial. So in 1772, Duke Friedrich of Mecklenburg-Schwerin responded to the possibility of burying people prematurely when they were still alive. And you'll see a story on the Drudge Report this week about some woman who was being buried in Peru. She'd been in a car accident, and as they're getting ready to bury her, she starts knocking on the coffin. She's still very much still alive. So the Duke had issued an order requiring Jews in his realm to wait three days before burying their dead. Now, the traditional Jewish custom is to bury the dead as quickly as possible, usually within a day or so of death. Now, a Jewish apostate had influenced the Duke in this matter, convinced him that the practice of early burial was not of great importance in Judaism. So the local Jewish community, believing that this ordinance violated Jewish law, wrote to both Rabbi Jacob Emden and Moses Mendelssohn, a forerunner of Reform Judaism, requesting their expert opinions. And they wanted to use these opinions to have this secular law revoked. Now, Rabbi Emden replied that one could not abandon the traditional Jewish practice of immediate burial because of some kind of far-fetched concern that someone who appears dead is really alive. Now, in his German letter to the Duke, Moses Mendelssohn agreed with Emden that delaying burial was in opposition to Jewish law, halacha. Now, this letter was sent for the sake of Jewish solidarity, but it did not reflect Mendelssohn's true view, which appears in a Hebrew letter he sent to the community leaders. So he says one thing to the Duke, who's not Jewish, says another thing to the Jewish community. So this is very common among all those with strong in-group identities. So in the letter to the community, he said that the Duke's requirement was not against Jewish law. And he caught attention to the various times when it is permitted to postpone a burial. And he added that if in these cases the rabbis permitted a body to lie unburied overnight, then certainly if there remains the slightest doubt that he may still be alive, he should not be buried. So Mendelssohn argued that the contemporary practice of immediate burial was opposed to the ancient Jewish tradition. So the old Jewish practice was to place the dead in caves and catacombs, where the body was watched for three days to see if there were any signs of life. So, according to Mendelssohn, what the Duke wanted was nothing more than that the Jews returned to their old ways of doing things. Now, in the decades after Moses Mendelssohn, there were many Reform Jews who supported this step. 
They viewed it as in line with modern science. And in response to these reform sentiments that uh, Rabbi Sofer took his strong stand in opposition to any altering of the traditional practice. So when you don't have the rise of reform Judaism, Orthodox rabbis are generally much more lenient. But in the face of the rise of reform Judaism, Orthodox rabbis will be much more likely to make a stand. Here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God, to quote the Protestant reformer Martin Luther. So Rabbi Sofer wrote to Rabbi Hayes, saying, Rabbi Hayes appeared to think there was nothing wrong with delaying burial if it was thought medically necessary. Rabbi Sofer asserted that one who does not bury a corpse immediately has violated two Torah commandments, one positive commandment, one negative. Now, Rabbi Hayes replies that Rabbi Sofer is mistaken in his assumption that one would violate two Torah commandments. It's really only a violation of one, the negative prohibition. Rabbi Sofer responds, according to Nachmanides, one does indeed violate a positive commandment, therefore he was within his rights in claiming so. Further, Rabbi Sofer notes, since there is no practical difference whether or not a prohibited act is in violation of one or two Torah commandments, it is good to raise, to intensify the prohibition. So it is good to exaggerate and to lie to try to intensify a prohibition in Jewish law. Though to discourage breaking Jewish law, it's often advisable to make the sin appear much worse than it really is. So this whole notion of intensifying the level of prohibition is a very common tactic among Orthodox rabbis. Only for a reason. And he, and he ends, the Marx Chais ends, the Chazal, he says that Chazal were always very careful to determine and to let us know when it's Daraisa, uh, when it's Darabana, and really it has no significant, no, no, no real difference. So we have to follow all of them, and yet the rabbis were very careful to let us know. Okay, very strong response to Chasm Shofar, but my, my, my response to Maritzchayas is, you said, Maritzchayas, that um, it's usher to say about an Isra Darabana and that it's an Isra Torah. Where does the Chasm Shofar say that? He doesn't say that at all. The Chassam Sofer never says that. He says, Tovo And he's talking about a case where there's a, um, where most assume that it's only a negative commandment. And the Ramban says it's a positive and a negative commandment. And then he says that uh, in that case, since at least the Ramban says that it's Tovo And then he speaks about how um, you can't, uh, you should not rely on um, uh, these uh, re- rejected views, I guess you would say, that. Uh, uh, that hold that let's say certain things about Shabbos are only Durabanan, because that'll lead people to reject it. And if and certainly don't say publicly that it's only a rabbinic prohibition, even if you think so. But where does the Chasm Sofer say here that Tov uh, means that you take a rabbinic prohibition and you are you increase that and say, help people, it's Torah prohibition. He doesn't say it anywhere. The Chasm Sofer, the Maritz is wrong. As far as I can see, uh, he's uh, accusing the Chassam Sofer of saying something which the Chassam Sofer doesn't say. So yes, the Chassam Sofer says to raise the level of an Isser. It's good to do. But that doesn't mean he's saying that we take a rabbinic prohibition, and since people don't listen to the rabbinic prohibition, tell them it's a Torah prohibition. It's true that he continues. The, the Chassam Sofer, he talks about how the people, uh, they don't pay attention to, and he doesn't say, therefore, tell them it's a Torah prohibition. What he's saying is that the note to be Yehuda shouldn't have um, come out with a heter, Based on the fact that Amiro that, that uh, non-Jewish writing is uh, is derabanan, and in general you don't need. So derabanan means from the rabbis later on and less less powerful in popular understanding than if you can trace a prohibition to the Bible to the Torah. So Rabbi Hayes replied to Sofer that it's not proper essentially to lie. 
And he says, yeah, the Talmudic sages would sometimes exaggerate the level of the prohibition, saying that one is subject to the heavenly death penalty for many violations. Yet this is only by way of threats to put the fear of sin into people. So Rabbi Hayes understands Rabbi Sofer to be including in his raising the prohibition the notion that one can also say that something is biblically prohibited, when in reality the prohibition is only rabbinic. So Hayes sees this as a violation of the prohibition against adding to the Torah. So there's a verse in the Torah that says, Do not add to my words nor subtract from them, as well as a violation of the biblical commandment to keep far from a false matter. That one might have a good reason for the deception is not sufficient in the eyes of Rabbi Hayes to sanction any distortion. But as you know, if you have any acquaintance with activists, they lie all the time to try to make their case more powerful and to gain more influence and money and prestige and fame for themselves. So in wider Western world politics, we see an elite you know, making alliances with often the middle class, but if not the middle class, with some some sections of the upper class and the lower classes to retain power. And you see rabbis trying to gain as much power as possible. So the general rules for any profession, whether it's the rabbinet or doctor or accountant, is that pretty much every profession wants to raise its rates, raise its power, raise its prestige, and make competition with it more difficult. And so rabbis are like any other profession. They want more power, more prestige, more money, more influence, more say. Need to tell them about every rabbinic prohibition, it's only a rabbinic prohibition. That's not the same thing as telling you. That, that means you're not telling them that it's a rabbinic prohibition. But that's not the same thing as actually telling them. Okay, blessings to Elliot Blatt. Blessing, bro. How are you doing? Baruch Hashem. Good show, bro. Good show. Thought-provoking. Very good. Excellent. How's but, Heavenly uh, Father treating you? Are you ready to transition to the, into the low IQ portion, portion of the show? Yes, or? yes. Yes, everybody. Get ready. Yes, Elliot Blatt and the low IQ. <laughs> yeah, okay. I just want <laughs> well, that set expectations. <laughs> you know what I mean, man. I realize there's some some some, some galaxy brain people out there that want to hear about the Torah and rabbis and all that stuff. So, <laughs> if I'm offending them, I'm sorry. <laughs> so, bro, listen, I did it, man. I made the choice. I jumped off the ledge. I came to the abyss, and I decided to jump in. What you you bought four months of subscription to the uh... <laughs> four months, bro? Four months. <laughs> Four months of uh, sensory deprivation tank uh, experience, bro. <laughs> I just completed day two. And how much? Well, it's 500 bucks a month. So you get one a day, you know, which is more or less all you can take. And um, yeah, so I'm going to, I'm going to milk this though. I'm going to get every single day. It sounds like you got a mission. bargain. And what kind of insights are you getting from this? Oh, well, good. I'm glad you asked, bro. So I went in there with intention, bro. You know, I'm like, I'm not just jumping in the water, bro. I'm going in there with a, with a purpose. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to calm my mind. I'm going to purify my heart. I'm going to clear my mind. I'm going to get closer to God. And I'm going to contemplate my flaws and, you know, think about how I can improve as a human being. And that's all I'm going to do as I'm sitting there, as I'm lying in there buoyant. And uh, so that's what I'm going to do. 
It's like five minutes, 10 minutes. It's pretty hard to do, you know, it's pretty hard to like maintain a sustained focus on your flaws, you know? Yeah. So yet I was, you know, I, I, I endeavored to do that. I managed to do like 10 minutes. Then I started thinking, well, who's going to win the Kentucky Derby? And that became like the most dominant thought in my head. And I couldn't shake it, bro. So I just was contemplating all of the nuances of, of the Kentucky Derby. And I was trying to like come up with a winner. So I did this for like 15 minutes straight. So I kind of got off track, bro. But, you know, it's a practice. Life's a practice. You fall, you get on the horse, you fall off the horse. You get on the horse, you fall off the horse. So I'd fallen off the horse. But I do have some insights about the Derby, if you're interested. I, I can't. Uh, yeah. Okay, Taba. Taba, bro. He's like, can he, he's 12 to 1 now. He's going to be like 8 to 1 at post time. He's a lock, dude. Eightfold your money right there. You heard it here first. Okay. <laughs> you excited, bro? Uh, I, I'm speechless. <laughs> you have me to thank, bro. <laughs> I mean, it sounds uh, like you're going to be able to make your money back. I, I, I'm going to get all the floats plus some, bro. Just from, just, just from, from being betting just on from the, being in the tank, the derby. Yeah, yeah. So I think it was a pretty good allocation of time, my dude. Uh, but but what about the inner reflection? What about the inner growth? I mean, did you did you re <clears throat> re return to that, or were you just hooked on the well, derby the I whole time? It was like checking channels. It was like switching channels, you know, like in the old days with the, like the manual TVs with like channel six, channel seven, channel eight, and you're clicking back and forth. So I was in this period where I was flicking back and forth. Go back to God. Go back to God. But what about the Derby? What about the Derby? Go back to God. Go back to God. What about the Derby? <laughs> you know, I'm flicking through, you know, and it, this is basically the essence of my in, inner struggle. You know? Yeah. And so, unfortunately, the Derby won out for like 45, 45 minutes of the 60, 60 minutes. But this is a special week, right? This is Derby week. You're not, it's like, imagine if this is Super Bowl week. You know, how hard is it to think about God during Super Bowl week? Uh, I'm not sure I, I've experienced that. Like I, I enjoyed the Super Bowl, but if, unless the Cowboys are playing in it, I, I'm not really thinking about it in the days ahead. Well, interesting. But you're, you're really into the Kentucky Derby? Oh, bro. It's a total obsession. It's a total obsession. It's disgusting. It's totally disgusting. How did amazing. you, how did you get into this? It was totally by accident. I never intended this, bro. Never intended this, but. I, through a strange circumstance of events, like in 2017, I started following the Kentucky Derby because on the on you know I never understood horse racing right until like 2017, and because hey, can you, you can carry learn... this show for a minute? I just got a delivery from Amazon. Can you? Okay, can you... sure, okay, sure. Go ahead. All right, so you know all the high-minded stuff is going out the window now. This is just Derby talk, and here's what you got to do. Um, come Saturday, you got to put Tibia on top, 
and then you single Messier in second place, and then you take everybody else, right? So trifecta, 50 cent trifecta, the whole thing will cost you about, I don't know, 12 bucks. If you hit this thing, you should be, you should be good for like two grand, bro. So um, you heard it here first. But um, sorry, I'm walking around my, on, in the kitchen on the phone and suddenly I'm carrying a show. So uh, if you're looking for content, I'm woefully unprepared. Um, and I'm not looking at the chat because I'm on my cell phone. And I got a pizza. I got a pizza in the oven. And the pizza is gluten-free. So I'm about to have my first gluten-free pizza, which um, which should be an interesting revelation. So either, either it just tastes like a regular pizza. I guess there's three options. Either it tastes like a regular pizza, sans gluten, or B, it tastes like a slightly subpar pizza without gluten. Or option three, which I'm dreading, which is that it's going to be um, inedible. So um, that was a little time killer. Uh, <clears throat> so I'll let you know how's that going. The pizza should be done in about five minutes. So, um, oh boy, I'm not reading the chat. So I'm just trying to imagine what chats are coming in and imagine some of them could be rather disparaging. But, um, wow. Uh, are you back, back, bro? I'm back. Okay. Sorry, man. That was tough. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I, people take this job so easy. Yeah, I'm not seeing the chat, so I'm not. I'm not getting the essential feedback. I know because, uh, you know, if you're not responding and the chat's not responding, I'm just kind of speaking. Not easy. Not way. easy. So you experience a reduction in anxiety levels, and I have to chill my perishables while I talk to you. Um. Yeah. Do I a reduction in anxiety levels? Yeah. You know, I have to say. Um, I've been sleeping much better since this little, um, I'm on day two, two. Okay. I did my third float today, but this is this, this one today was like two in a row. So this is the second one where it's been consecutive, like two consecutive floats. That's what they're called. And, um, like, it's very strange because you become acutely aware of all of the tension that you're holding in your body when you're in this, right? That's all you can think about. So then all you do is you try and relax this bit, these bits of tension. And it's very solipsistic. I mean, at the end of the day, you're just thinking about the tension in your body. But at the same time, it's a message. It's a signal. You know, it's something you, you, it's a piece of information that you need to be aware of that you, um, you know, if, if the world weren't so hectic, uh, hold on, I'm checking the pizza and the Brussels sprouts. You got Brussels sprouts. The Brussels sprouts are done. Let's look at the pizza here. Pizza needs like five minutes. Um, if you're not aware, so yeah, you come to, you come to like understand the tension in your body and um, you can think about it and then you can like, think about ways of sort of like the Alexander technique, but you, you sort of, you get into your tension. You're like, how can I relax this tension, bro? And uh, you, you're, 
it's it's nice because sometimes you do you like you you unwind some of this tension and like suddenly you just feel freer once you you you, you get these cracks in your body and this this shifting of your skeleton look you back bro mm-hmm. uh, i'm with you bro yeah. oh, i would okay. never leave you nor forsake you, you. Ah, i was just trying to carry bro i was i was just kind of you know improvising um so um yeah does this appeal to you or what uh sure i'm not not sure i'm ready to drop 500 dollars a month but uh well well here's the difference like if you go to like if you go to a spa you go to one of these places it's a hundred bucks for one, but then it's five hundred bucks for thirty. Oh, wow, wow! No, you're you're saving massive amounts of money now. Yeah. So if you're gonna try this out, you go one time, or do you go thirty times to really see if it works? You gotta, you gotta commit to the process, bro. And is this a good way to meet people? No, absolutely. It's the absolute opposite uh, good way to meet people because. Yeah, all you do is you go up and then you, you, you put you put on like these spa provided sandals, you know? And then they say, Oh, hi Elliot, you're in room four. And then they walk you to room four and then thus ceases any further social interaction. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> it's as clinical as it gets, my dude. There's no community whatsoever. Well, when I'm looking at the videos on YouTube, they're filled with scantily clad women. <laughs> yes, they're they're the receptionists, bro. That's what they do. And does she they're ever jump there. in the sensory deprivation tank with you? <laughs> no, she doesn't, bro. She's just. Uh... I saw a movie well, maybe, about that. Maybe if she were like you, bro, she was like this towering Adonis, like you are. Yeah. She'd say, "Oh, do you mind if I jump in the tank with you?" <laughs> you know. <laughs> I saw a no, movie man, where a guy went to a sensory deprivation tank and then the receptionist gets in there with him and, and he yeah. wasn't so sensorily deprived. That's right. It's, it's, it's cross purposes. So no, they're like, how can I get rid of this guy as fast as possible? Well, I know I'll just show him to his tank and shut the door. <laughs> and he's out of my life. Wow. So the whole thing, like the whole thing of like spa interactions is totally contrived. I mean, yeah, I was thinking of joining a gym because I yeah. thought, you know, I need more human contact, but uh, it doesn't sound like there's actually a lot of human contact at the gym. But for $5, I just drank my essential greens celery, cucumber, spinach, romaine, kale, lime, and parsley juice. That sounds nice. Too yeah. bad it's too bad it's been, uh, it's organic. You know, too bad it's been in a jar for, the, for a week and then delivered to you by Amazon. And not like freshly prepared. No, it, it, it's it's fresh. Like it's just it, it, it's beautiful. Like like Mexican children have been picking this these vegetables and squeezing them with their feet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That reminds me of like the first sort of like a Moses movie I ever saw, like on the black and white cheat TV when I was I don't know twelve years old or something. Was that scene like I don't know if you saw it? I didn't know the name of it, but it, it was like all the slave children of Israel, sort of <laughs> walking up and down in these these vats of grape juice, trying to crush the grapes. <laughs> Do you remember that? Or you, you're probably uh, I'm not sure. By I, that. I don't think I saw that. Yeah, you're probably you know blissfully unaware of this because you're still in Australia. But that's that's 
that was my introduction to Jewish history. <laughs> hey, the guacamole is like 30% off on Amazon Fresh. Oh, really? Luke, you're destroying local economies by, by uh, using this convenient service that is Amazon. That's good Just customer you know. service, bro. Good customer service. So, um, are you, uh, so you're not at all inclined to jump in a tank right now, right? I haven't sold you yet. No, not really. But have you been listening to any blood sports? Can you give me any updates on any e-drama? Um, <clears throat> I think you're probably more up to date than I am. I have been listening, but, but passively. And like in a lot of recaps, like replays of the Medicore, some of some of the sort of more choice interactions between Medicare and Ralph. And um, just all the swearing, Luke, I it, it's as I get older, it's like I can barely it's I can tolerate vulgarity less and less. Do you find this to be true? Uh, it's situational. So, yeah. Yeah, in some some situations, I don't mind it. Like I had this girlfriend who would implore me to fuck her like a whore, and yeah. in that situation, I didn't didn't take objection to the profanity. <laughs> That's a highly situational, though. I mean, how often does that situation happen? Though. Oh, I mean, we're talking, you know, twenty, thirty times, bro. <laughs> but how about? Would you like to hear Ralph? Um... Ethan Ralph. No, no, I don't really want to hear Ethan Ralph swear. <laughs> yeah, but you listen to these guys and F this and, you know, mother F that and over and over and over. And I'm like, is this the best the white race has to offer? You know what I mean, bro? Uh, you would probably benefit listening to some Mark Shapiro. He's, he's doing something on the rabbinic response to reform Judaism. He's on like episode 14. Maybe you can send a copy to Ralph. You think he'd listen? <laughs> oh, my, gl my gluten-free pizza's out of the oven, bro. You excited for me by proxy? I've got my Yasso mint chocolate chip yogurt bars, bro. They're so you don't eat hot food, do you? You just eat like oh, occasionally. Food. I mean, if I can put it in a microwave. I'm not going to oh, put it in God. an oven. Oh, we're never going to see eye to eye about our dietary habits, bro. I mean, you're really, you're really missing out. Um, oh, so how do you feel about the the Supreme Court undoing Roe v. Wade, bro? I'm sure you've got a galaxy oh, brain take on that. It's so even hard for me to think about. I mean, the whole... I don't even know how, like, people can, like... It's so disgusting. It's just so, so inhumane, you know, bro. It's so hard to like contemplate without just feeling thoroughly disgusting, you know? I, I was never, you know, even when I was a leftist way back when, in, the, in like when I was 20, like the whole abortion thing, I just kind of like pretended it wasn't happening when they were talking about it. It was so, it was so hard for me to contemplate. It's probably a big reason why I left the whole leftist thing because of. Uh, right, but then, know, that, right. did that it's stop so you from forcing your your girlfriend to get an abortion back when you were twenty seven? No, like, like, I, 
it was like it was such a buzzkill, you know, just thinking about it. Like, um, and it was such a crusade back then. It still is now. Um, uh, God, man, you're making me uncomfortable, bro. Just talking about it. Um, I don't know. I mean, people have a visceral response to this, and like, why can't the visceral response be truth? You know. Um, I don't know. Uh, I was hoping not to talk about this, to tell you truthfully. I mean, I, it's just me being like a, being a pussy. <laughs> and it's just like, <laughs> uh, my mind is spinning right now. I'm totally incoherent. Yeah, but would you, a... would you like to see abortion illegal so that women have to, you know, get them with clothes hangers and stuff? Is that the choice? Is that like, is that... It's like vitamin C, like abortions, like vitamin C. You need it like, you know, like modifying one's behavior is not like in the cards whatsoever. Well, but it's but not like it's not like abortions are, like COVID nineteen, right? You go, you went to grocery, you went to get some groceries. And, oh my god, I'm pregnant! <laughs> you know, it's not exactly the same thing. So you've never knocked anyone up? Not that I'm aware of. Because I'm eating this uh, gluten-free pizza as we speak. Great. And if you want me to stop, just tell me. Yeah. Want... We're, we're coming near the end of today's uh, conversation. Okay. So, My so hit me with your best shots. <laughs> well, all right. Um... Let's ha- let's pause this conversation. We'll have it when I have it when I'm more coherent about it. I have to like organize my thoughts about abortion. I wasn't like ready to talk about it while I'm eating. Okay, bro. Good to talk to you, man. All right, peace. All right, later. Bye. Bye. Just have to chill my perishables there. Let's get some uh, Mark Shapiro here. Rise of Reform Judaism. Take care, Elliot. Bye-bye. All right, all right, bye. I'm finding the button. I'm looking for the yeah, button. Yeah, find the button, Elliot. It's a Torah prohibition when it's only rabbinic. So I uh, I have no doubt here that the um, that the, the Maritz is uh, is mistaken in this matter. Uh, because look, if the, the Chassam Sofer thought that that was acceptable, he wouldn't. if the Chassam Sofer thought it was acceptable to tell people, and we're going to see that there are Acheronim who do think it's acceptable, but not the Chassam Sofer. If the Chassam Sofer thought it was acceptable to say that it's a Torah prohibition when it's only rabbinic prohibition, then he would have said so. Why does he need to cite the Ramban? He's telling you that the only reason I'm saying that it's a Torah, that it's a, uh, a, an Asay and a Lotase is because, um, you know, the Ramban says so. But wait a second. If the whole idea, if you're allowed to misrepresent the Torah in order to get people to follow it, then I don't need the Ramban. I can just tell him. I can just say you violate your prohibitions. Um, that to me is obvious. However, even if the Chassam Sofer, and what, what I'm saying, my interpretation of the Chassam Sofer is, I'm saying, it's not, I mean, that, I've read it, and I assume that. It's the first time I read it, but subsequently, when I was investigating it, uh, that, that's the standard understanding of the Chassam Sofer. The, the standard understanding is what I just said, and the assumption is that the Maharaj is incorrect. But even if the Maharaj is incorrect in attributing this to the Chassam Sofer, there were others who held this position, that the, Sofer, the Maharaj Chayas attributes to the Chassam Sofer, namely, that you can take a rabbinic prohibition and you can tell the masses, the Hamonam, that it's a Torah prohibition. Because at the end of the day, why do the homonam need to know the truth? There's no nafkamina. If the job of a rabbi is to keep the people uh, observant, uh, if he knows that the uh, the people are not going to listen, if they know it's rabbinic and they tell and they ask him, is it rabbinic or not? He can tell them, no, it's a Torah prohibition. Or if he thinks just by announcing it, it's going to help matters. 
This leads to a fundamental dispute that I wrote about in Changing the Immutable. You can find it on Amazon, those who are interested. My other two books from Whitman, uh, Limits of Orthodox Theology and uh, Between the Yeshiva Modern Orthodoxy, for months, for some reason, we couldn't get them on Amazon. They, they just, uh, just these third-party sellers. But Baruch Hashem, last week, they're now available on Amazon, and so anyone who wants to buy, uh, feel free. So I speak in Changing the Immutable, th this view that uh, you can um, tell people with the Torah prohibition when it's only rabbinic in opposition to the Maritz Chayas, and they don't think it's a, uh, it's a problem. Um, and this has great contemporary relevance. I mentioned last week, because uh, the frim So press one if you agree with the Maritz Chayas, and press two if you agree with the Rabbi Sofer. Our brothers, they, they wrote a whole long essay in tradition on women's prayer groups. And uh, they dealt with like statements like from the Wai Yerosh Yeshiva, that it's us, sir. So they have a whole appendix there saying, us, sir, means forbidden. When they say it's us, sir, they didn't, it's not really usser, like you can point to a source. It's usser. It's usser because they feel it's going to lead to uh, bad, bad things, bad results. Uh, much like maybe it's not technically usser to pray in the vernacular, but we know where it's going to lead to. Uh, so the frimers have a whole appendix there. Can you misrepresent the Torah for positive uh, goals? And they show that this is a huge dispute with big authorities on both sides of the issue. Uh, can you, for, you know, for public policy, can you uh, say that something's forbidden and even forbidden from the Torah if it's not really? They conclude that the consensus of codifiers uh, maintain that public policy considerations doesn't entitle you to service in halakha. But I, I don't think that's true. I think from the very sources they cite, uh, there's no consensus. I think it, it's a dispute and it remains a dispute. Uh, I mean, just to give you some examples, none other than, forget the Rashba, I mean, he's great enough. But in our own day, Ravad Yosef and Chaim Kanievsky both state that it's permissible to misrepresent the reason or the source of a prohibition. And the Frimers cite sources that do hold you could upgrade, in quotes, a biblical uh, rabbinic prohibition to a biblical one, which is how Maritz Chayas understood the Chassam Sofer. So um, I, uh, I, this, is a, this is a dispute, and um, there's plenty of authorities that say to uh, oppose it. And Rechaim David Levi actually, he was chief of Tel Aviv, he says the whole dispute is irrelevant today, because today, uh, if you lie to your community, it'll get out. People, this is before the internet. He said this. Uh, he died before there was an internet. He died, I think, in '98. Uh, but he said that um, if you tell your congregants something, they're going to find out the truth, uh, and then they're going to lose respect for you. So in our day and age, you have to be honest with them. But uh, there is a trend in our tradition. It doesn't mean I like it, but it's there uh, that uh, permits misrepresentation and even outright falsification of halacha if it serves a good purpose. That is, there's this uh, idea that for the masses, they don't need to know, and uh, the elites, they know the truth. Uh, you don't find this in the well, you, you sort of, surpass some passages, you might be able to find sources from the Gemara. You definitely find the idea of that is, you don't need to let the masses in on all the truths. Uh, Rav Shechter quotes in Nefesh Rav, or Rav Hine Rav, that uh, the Rav told his students that even though craft cheese was kosher, that's what he held, uh, because it was a vegetable rennet, and he held like the, the view in Tosos that we're not concerned, that uh, basically Givinas Akum is like Chal it's, uh, it's not a matter, it's not like Shlita, where you need the Jew to be involved. Today we don't hold like that to none of the Kashrus organizations. But he said, don't tell the Balabati this, because uh, they, they won't know how to distinguish properly. But that's not the same thing as telling them falsehoods, but we have examples. I gave a great example in my book about a rabbi, Elial Rusov, who was confronted with an unbelievable question, where um, guy was sitting Shiva, and the last day of Shiva is Shabbos, and he wanted to know, uh, do you sit Shiva on Shabbos? And the reason he wanted to know is because uh, he had a store that he would, he wasn't Shama Shabbos, so he wanted to go back to the store, because his wife was running it, and she was doing a terrible job. So Rabbi Rusoff says, well, if I tell him the truth, that there is no Shiva, then he's going to be Michal Shabbos. On the other hand, can I lie to him? and tell them there is Shiva? Like today, this would not even be a question because anyone could open up Maurice Lamb's book or go on the internet and you know the answer to that. But he decides in the end 
that I'm not going to tell the truth to this person. We do a simple Jews. And he tells them that uh, you don't, it's Shabbos. Uh, so there is, you, you, uh, you have to stay in the house, but uh, you, you don't, you can put on regular clothes, all that sort of thing, but you're not allowed to leave the house. So he lies to him and he tells him that there's some, um, some, some of Avelos and that you have to stay in the house. Avelos um, means the morning. Day, uh, because otherwise uh, the, the person's going to go to a store after all. And in any event, Avelos ends. Uh, you only do a tiny bit uh, the last day. But he says, and he defends himself and he goes through the whole thing. What's the role of the rabbi? He speaks about a Ravos that we're responsible for everyone. You might say, why do I care what this guy does? But no, all Jews are responsible for one another and there's cosmic significance. So we try our hardest. We don't even want Jews who are Mechal Shabbos. We try to avoid it if we can putting him in a situation uh, where they're going to be Mechal Shabbos. So, so in Orthodox outreach groups, they often invite non-Orthodox Jews over to a Shabbat dinner or a holiday meal, but the more traditional ones don't want the non-Orthodox Jews driving. That would be a violation of the laws of Sabbath. And then some more liberal or modern Orthodox groups you know, don't inquire. But I remember when, when I asked this uh, traditional Jewish group in the Fairfax La Brea area, I needed a place for a Passover Seder. They they asked me where I live because they weren't going to provide me a place if I would have to have to drive to the Seder. Praise God, I, I live nearby, or at least I, I told them that I did. So this is a terrific book, Changing the Immutable, How Orthodox Judaism Rewrites Its History. So according to Rabbi Hayas, the Talmudic sages were always very careful to clarify which matters were from the Torah, which were rabbinic, even though there was no practical legal distinction, because from the traditional Jewish perspective, whether it's coming from the written Torah, or the oral Torah, it's, these are all manifestations of the divine will. Now, Rabbi Chayas objected that Rabbi Sofa's approach violates the biblical command against telling a falsehood. But Rabbi Sofa's false statement had an important purpose that it would make it permissible in the eyes of many authorities. So it's unlikely that Hayas is correct in assuming that Sofa believed that one can describe something as biblically prohibited when this is not the case. So had Rabbi Sofer thought that telling a falsehood about a commandment was acceptable when it came to influencing the masses to follow religious law, he would not have had to justify his position by citing Nachmanides. Yet, even if Sofer did not hold the position attributed to him, there were others who did. So we can speak about a fundamental dispute between rabbinic figures. Are we obligated to tell the truth? when we make decisions regarding Jewish law, or is the most important thing to keep people in line? So this applies in secular politics as well, or in public health officials. So public health officials and politicians during COVID often had to make pronouncements for all varieties of the IQ experience. And so they had to boil things down and oversimplify and sometimes err on the side of caution. If you were dealing, say, with a group with an average IQ of 120, you could be more accurate, but you're not always dealing with a group with an average IQ of 120, you're more likely to be dealing with a group with an average IQ of about 98. So you have to then boil things down, exaggerate, and to simplify to get your point across. So if a rabbi feels that the only way to secure religious stability in his community is to tell the masses falsehood, then uh, surely that would be acceptable. And if the only way is to maintain stability in the secular community, or to prepare a nation in a state of war, in a state of emergency, that uh, you need to tell them some falsehoods to keep them in line and to keep them stable. Maybe, maybe there are greater values than telling the truth. 
So in the controversy about the Jewish validity of women's prayer groups, there are many who thought the prohibitions issued against these groups, which were formulated in terms of Jewish law, were actually public policy prohibitions, not strictly violating Jewish law. So there are many sources that conclude the consensus of codifiers maintains that public policy considerations, no matter how justified, do not entitle the rabbinic authorities to misrepresent Jewish law. But there are many rabbis who disagree, believing it is permissible to misrepresent the reason for or a source of a prohibition. So one may upgrade a rabbinic prohibition to a biblical one. There are many sources that say one is permitted to deviate from the truth to maintain peace, and that the same logic applies to misrepresent Jewish law to maintain, maintain peace between various members of the, the Jewish people and God. So there is a strong trend in the Jewish tradition that would permit misrepresentation and outright, outright falsehoods regarding Jewish law if a good purpose is served by doing so. Get a little bit more here from Mark Shapiro. It's a long, um, it's a long dispute. You can read about it in my book. Uh, incidentally, I, uh, in my book, I found that uh, the Meiri says that the Talmud sometimes uh, attributes biblical authority to rabbinic um, uh, rabbinic laws. Um, it says that the Talmud says that honoring a step parent is, is a Torah law, even though we know it's only a rabbinic command. And uh, the Meiri explains that. Uh, Human psychology being what it is, you can assume that step parenting in ancient times was as difficult and often thank as thankless as it is today. So, well, the Meiri says that the Talmud, this statement that um, it, it's a Torah, it's a Torah law. They were raising the prohibition that is not, not to mistreat step parents to encourage people to give proper respect. I, I couldn't find anyone else who says this, and therefore I'm assuming they assume that the, all the other Rishonim think that this opinion is an outlying opinion, which we don't accept. But the Me'iri doesn't see it as an outlying opinion. The Me'iri sees it as in line with all the other opinions, but this is an example of where something is being said, that is uh, no different than when the Gemara sometimes says that if you violate this, it's like you worship idolatry, or you violate the whole Torah. So here too, they exaggerate uh, to uh, get people to uh, properly... Uh, um, behave. Incidentally, uh, also, since I mentioned Shachter, Shachter and Nefesharav says that uh, he agrees with Ritzvius or Chaim Soloveitchik says that, uh, and the Rav would hold it. So Rav Herschel Shachter is perhaps the most influential and powerful decider of Jewish law in modern Orthodox life in America today. Also, that to misrepresent halacha, to say that a rabbinic prohibition is biblical, he thinks that this is a violation of the Torah law, Midbar Midbar Tirchak, that to be uh, that you can't uh, say a false matter, and uh, this this became a problem in Germany. I discussed this in uh, limits in um, between the Shiva world. You had the whole problem of um, stunning before Shrita, and the rabbis. Shrita is the the killing of animals. And uh, Rosinski said that we can't give reasons. We have to just say it's absolutely forbidden. Rabbi Chiyak of Weinberg thought that he could find a way to permit it. That with the new types of stunning, um, it wouldn't uh, create internal problems. But Rav Chaim Moser-Grosinski prevailed on him to not publish this, and they didn't publish it until... Uh... So traditional societies tend to be very strongly conformist, right? So the closer your ties to other people, the more vulnerable you are to being pressured to back down and to not reveal something. It's after his, his mother, his grandmother, and his mother. And we have a number of examples like that, so maybe... Um... Yes, thank you, Hyman. Yeah, that's what we said. Uh, so then why, if, it's, if Hyman says correctly, that's a Torah prohibition to say that uh, the Rabbanon's Daraisa, what is the Chassam Sofer? How, I mean, how could the people... So Der Rabbanon means from the rabbis, the Raisa means from the written Torah, the Pentateuch. Well, like uh, Ravad Yosef say otherwise, because uh, um, 
because here you're doing it not to misrepresent the Torah, here you're doing it to keep people in the fold. I guess that's the argument they could, uh, um, they don't see this as Ziyafat Torah. They see this as, um, as uh, the masses. The masses are not entitled to all the information because they're the masses. You can't lie to a Tamil Chacham. You can't lie in a Shear. But when you're trying to keep the masses on the straight and narrow, you can. Sounds a little bit like the Catholic Church that they were trying to keep people ignorant. It, well, they were. In fact, they, they, they refused to allow translations of, uh, of even a Kitzvah Shachon What Rabbi Yellen cites there from Rabbi Dessler, I cite that in my book as well. That uh, truth is truth. What's truth is, is what keeps you in line with HaKadosh uh, Baruch Hu. That's, that that's truth. God. Uh, that's a higher truth. Uh, so there you go. Um, uh, yes, uh, let me go quickly. There are alternate truths. That's exactly. There's truth and there's truth. The truth, the capital T, truth is multi. I don't know which is with, but uh, the, the ultimate truth is to be in line with God and to follow halacha. The other truth is a, is a lesser truth that can Jewish be dispensed law. with for certain people, just like our children. Do we always tell our children the truth? No, uh, we want them to do the right thing. Uh, please take a look at my book. You'll see all the different sources. There's Gemaras that speak about this. Uh, it's I, I think this is a dispute that Gemara goes back means to the days from of the, the Talmud, and it goes through the Rishonim. Uh, we're uncomfortable with it today because uh, we believe in um, that all the facts should be out there, and that we don't believe in covering things up. But uh, there's a whole tradition of this. Uh, but people can't get away with it as much anymore. Uh, Mike says, because just as a tradition, over prohibitions, isn't the converse also true? Not to tell women about some prohibitions, we're pretty sure they won't keep it. It's not just women. The Gemara says this. Just like it's a mitzvah to say that's what they will listen to, it's a mitzvah not to say what they won't listen to. A rabbi who knows his community is not going to follow something, is not supposed to get up and tell them that. We discussed this in the first, uh, when I dealt with my latest book. When you're learning in Shulchan Aruch, you're not supposed to skip, but you're not supposed to tell people something. If um, you're not in the most observant community and everyone came and they brought their baby carriages and then you get a note, that, the, that you get a message that the Arab is down. The psak as given by big rabbis is you're not supposed to get up and you're not supposed to announce the Arab is down because uh, the people are still going to... So according to traditional Jewish law, you can't carry on the Sabbath, but an Arab is a thin... Is a, is a thin band that uh, can go around a community creating an enclosed place where you buy, you can carry. And so an Eruv can extend for 10, 20, 30 miles in, in many directions. It can cover, you know, 100 square miles, such as in Los Angeles. Push the carriages, and now they're so you can it push a baby carriage. They say you're not supposed to make a public announcement. The you tell a few people who you know are pious and listen to. Every rabbi knows this, and this is not a modern thing. This goes back to the Gemara. Better that they're shogging than they're amazing. Do not tell people about things if you know they're not going to listen. So that's Talmudic. Um, Harvey says it appears that rabbis are treating us like children. No, not us. We're here learning on Monday nights. We're part of the elites. We get all the information. But the, the, the there's a distinction between the Hamon Am. The rabbis distinguish between the Hamon Am. Look, all, everyone agrees the rabbis distinguish between the Hamon Am and the elites. Some achronim hold that uh, you can even... Um, distort things for the Hamonam, but everyone knows. The Gemara already says that the Hamonam doesn't get all the information. There's a halacha of a Norin king. We have certain halacha that we can't tell the Hamonam because they can't handle it. Like the movie says, they can't handle the truth. And uh, every rabbi knows this also. When you get up and give a sermon, there's certain things you say. and certain things you don't say. If you have a small shear, your five best Talmudim, you'll speak about more complicated matters because that's self-selected. People come, but when you're giving a sermon, everyone's sitting there. You don't raise all sorts of problematic issues. Some people will be troubling for them. They won't. They won't grasp it. Uh, that's that's um, the Rambam explicitly dis distinguishes between those who are able to be let into certain truths and everyone else who's not. The, and this is based on the Gemara. We're not allowed to teach Meisim Merkava 
to a, a group? Why not just individuals? Because not everyone is able, not everyone is deserving of the truths. I know this sounds very elitist, but that's, that's our tradition, that there are certain things that not everyone is. So the more traditional you go in Orthodox Judaism, the more elitist it becomes. So the more modern, the more liberal, then the more egalitarian it becomes. So let's uh, check out a link here suggested by Art Bell. Let's see what's going on with the... Nick Fuentes show. Ralph, now his kill stream, like yesterday, was at like 11.30 midnight? He was starting it up? Like, I'm like, why? Your show was supposed to be at 9 o'clock, 9.30, like, like what? Or 10 or whatever. And now it's it's about the control for him. Because I think the Nick's bathroom. Control freak. Yeah, no, but I'll go on a tangent here. Nick is a control freak. He has to control every aspect of every single person in the movement's life. And you know what? That's fine when you're dealing with children that have no life experience, no accomplishments, no ego. But when you're dealing with actual grown ass adult men and you try and micromanage them to that point, to that level, they're going to fucking snap not gonna fucking listen to you especially when you literally are a fucking mexican child that up until fucking like a year ago was living in his mother's basement and then started living with Jaden. can't ride people like that well you can't stream in my time slot you can't be friends with this person or that person can't talk to jake lloyd you can't talk to cwc you can't yeah i was always surprised when people would say oh you know i'm not gonna stream in your time slot and i say stream away the internet's big enough for both of us just like i'm um... I'm always taken aback when sponsees say, oh, I'd like to get your permission to do X, Y, Z. It's like, no, you don't need my permission, any sponsor's permission to do anything you want. Can't do this. You can't do that. Like, fuck you. You know, you're not their daddy. You're not their father. You're not their God. You're a fucking man. And this is like the pretension and the ego of this fucking guy. I think that he can micromanage and control every single aspect of Jaden's life. You cannot. You are a fucking glorified hall monitor on the internet flags people because people make fun of you and you cry or a nothing you are a fucking nobody you are a small fish really. look if uh nick fuentes or you know some powerful sponsors running people's lives it's only because those people allow them it's only because those people are weak we all naturally tend to exert ourselves and to seize as much influence and power as we can that's the natural human progression so if we have too much power over people's lives yeah, part of the problem may be that we're overreaching, but a huge part of the problem is that other people are too weak and allowing themselves to be pushed around. So when you don't allow yourself to be pushed around, when you speak up for yourself, when you say, no, that's not okay, then you're not just doing yourself a favor, you're doing the other person a favor. I had a girlfriend who allowed me to yell at her, and so my yelling just escalated because she didn't stop it, while other girlfriends would very quickly shut me down and say, don't be a jerk, and then as soon as girlfriend has pointed out that I was being a jerk, I would usually recognize that she was right and I would uh, become become a mensch, become a, a good guy again. So if uh, Nick Fuentes or Ethan Ralph or any, you know, online character is exerting too much influence and power over his followers, then that's largely on them. You know, why are you so weak that you're allowing this, right? You should not be asking a sponsor for permission to do things that you want to do. And you should not be asking some, you know, East Lab for permission. Really, Nick? Like, let's get real. You're a big fish in a small pond. This whole ecosystem is small as fuck. Even politics within a subset of streaming is small. And you're a small niche of that, dude. Get over yourself. You're not a god. So the problem with live streaming is that you think that you're smarter than you are. You think that you have more influence than you do. You think that you're more important than you really are. It's incredibly intoxicating to, to get this, this positive feedback. 
And so it's very, very easy to lose any sense of proportion. And so we all tend to do that which makes us feel important. So I used to sit back and think, oh, you know, dear old dad, he was such a pathetic, broken down person that he devoted all his attention to preaching the gospel of Jesus because that's the thing he did that gave him the biggest feeling of importance. And my father would say that he preferred speaking at funerals because that's when people would listen to him most closely. And in, in social engagements, my father usually wouldn't talk much unless he thought the people were listening and he was doing some good. So he was not really someone who had a lot of friends. He had more followers. But then I thought about it and read about it. And it's like, we're all like that. We all tend to do that which makes us feel most important. We all tend to go where we get the most positive attention, right? We're all groping and grasping towards the sun like a plant grows towards the sun, looking for that positive attention, looking for a feeling of importance. And so people will spend hours a day live streaming because that's the number one thing that gives them a feeling of importance. I mean, that, that, that's true for me. Other people will work out. Other people will take, take great care of their appearance because that gives them a great feeling of importance. Other people will go to synagogue and, and pray three times a day because that is their primary source of importance, along with, say, being a husband or, or a father or just, uh, say, an important worker. So if you get your primary sense of importance from your job, then you may well work more than eight hours a day. Right? If you get your primary sense of importance from your hobby, then you'll engage in your hobby all the spare time that you can. We all gravitate towards doing that which gives us the most feeling of importance. That's it. All right. Okay, here we go. I show. And, um, and, and everybody notices that. Everybody sees that. And it's, it's like it's a big public slight. But it's like, whatever. I'm like, okay, no biggie. I'm not going to make a big deal out of it. I really don't care, you know. But it is, it is just kind of like a jag-off move. So it's like, and then that started recently. Everybody, everybody, like, knows the dynamic there. And then that started sort of recently. Then, you know, Jake Lloyd makes this comeback, and all the Jaden people are gassing him up. And, like, in case people don't know, Jake Lloyd did the same thing that Patrick Casey did, except without the oh, he did. flame out. Now, Patrick Casey release information that I probably only him and maybe one or two other people were privy to. Nick was under federal investigation, was on a no-fly list, and that the feds had frozen his assets. Jake Lloyd did not reveal any of that. Jake Lloyd did not reveal any privileged information. Jake Lloyd made a clean break from America first. After January 6th, he didn't want anything to do with it. He waited until the situation cooled off and the feds weren't just fucking throwing everybody in jail or freezing their shit or putting on no fly list. He was smart. Now he's come back and he's trying to rebuild a lot of what Fuentes has destroyed. Somehow he's the bad guy for being smart and taking care of himself. He should have sacrificed himself and his life for Nick Fuentes. Nick will admit that he didn't really ever like Jake or any of these guys to begin with. It's the same thing with me and Ralph, right? Almost the same thing. Ralph was streaming over my time slot. You know, he was um, undermining me, not paying me, not promoting, which was the whole agreement. I wasn't, ask I wasn't asking to be paid. It was, you'll promote me and I'll, I'll be on the show. And then when I leave, I'm the snake. When I left, like, without saying anything, I broke it, like, as clean as possible. You know? This also adds now, like, the politics behind it. You know, if everybody remembers, the original beef with Patrick, which you called out a year ago was that he wasn't going to ask pack two. You know, people forget that. It's like, yeah, then he went on a tirade against me and, you know, oh, try, so try this to is revisionist oh. history bullshit. So Patrick just didn't want to go to AFPAC two. 
He said the heat is too much after January 6th, which it was. It was fucking insane after January 6th. Patrick didn't want to go. He wanted it to be discreet that he didn't go. Erickson blew it up into a big fucking fight and pushed it to an area. And Patrick finally said, okay, want to fucking play nuclear? Well, here's the truth. This is why I don't want to go. Nick's under federal investigation. He's on the no-fly list. His assets have been frozen. And Nick went on the kill stream, lied, said it was half-truths. It turned out it was the full truth that Patrick told everybody. And Nick didn't want you. See, the thing was, you could have your choice to go to AFPAC or not, but it should have been an informed decision. You should have had access to the information Patrick had, which is that Nick was on a no-fly list. He was investigated by the feds, his bank account frozen. Without that knowledge, you couldn't have informed consent on going to AFPAC too. The event probably should never have been held in the first place. It's just crazy to me that this is like revisionist bullshit like this. And he gets away with it because his cult lacks critical thinking skills. Posed me or something and lied. But what preceded that was that he was abandoning the movement. And it's like, you know, so you bandwagon on a Groyper war. You make a ton of money off of my residual audience on DLive. You get you speak at my events. See, and this is the you thing. This is the thing. Is, is now like, well, you owe me everything. You owe me loyalty even if I fuck up. Because I, I, I got you donos. Okay, if some, someone can help you and you're doing very well and you're making money and then, then that person turns into a psycho, psycho or crazy or says shit that you disagree with, now you're owed forever to, a, uh, to nod and go, yes, you're right, because they helped you a few times? Retarded. It's insane. Please. You know, I, and I graciously allow him back into the fold after he was very gracious. Rude gracious. Oh, King Nick, you're so gracious. Oh, gracious I was so Nick. gracious and magnanimous. Whenever you have to describe yourself as gracious, are you really? Because if you had grace, would you fucking brag about it like that? Yeah, I'm so, I'm, I'm so nice. I'm oh. And then, uh, then he doesn't go to AFPAC too. And it's like, I took that as a big sign of disloyalty. And, and same thing with you. Hang on. Yeah. Jake. And Jake said, like, oh, well, you know, he made up some bullshit excuse. And I said, okay, whatever. And I keep asking him, like, hey, like, you know, if you if you want to quit this thing, like, just tell me, but, like, let me know. And he kept telling me, no, no, I'm still a part of this, but, you know, I'm just, like, I'm just doing my own thing or whatever. Well, then I find out he's he's best buddies with Matt Kipta. And Matt Kipta was a guy who I look up, I looked up to, one of my best friends, talked to him every day. I've gone over the story on stream before. This is, like, a DC uh, guy. And I've known this guy for a year or two. And uh, I considered him a close friend. I considered him a confidant. I considered him a trusted person. I've, and I helped him a lot. I introduced him to a lot of people. I introduced him to a lot of my contacts. I tried to get his projects off the ground. And after January 6th, he just stops talking to me. And he calls everybody that we know, all our mutual friends, and says, Nick told me to tell you never to talk to him again because he's under FBI investigation, which I didn't. And like, so people, well, some people are saying like, oh. Should his contacts not have known that he was under FBI investigation? That all of the messages that they might send to Nick might be viewed by the feds? If you weren't going to tell them, Nick, why was it wrong for him to tell them? Because it blew up your spot? Because it made things harder for you? Well, what if one of those fuckers got arrested because of the shit they sent to you? You think about that? The guy might have been wrong to lie and said, Nick said this. Who even knows if that's the fucking truth? But I don't think he was wrong to let Nick's contacts know that he's under investigation. That's something that if you're, you should know. Yeah, definitely. Should know. Like, yeah. To make sure that everything you're talking about is on the up and up in private messages because you're being, you know, surveilled by the, the FBI. It's smart to know that. This is not a big deal. Like, what's the big deal? That's a big deal. You know, when we're out there trying to stop the steal, like, at the end of the day, okay. I, like, it's not about Get real.
Like, let's get real. You were never going to stop the steal, and you knew that. It was a grift from the fucking beginning, and the grift went out of your fucking control. There was some glowy shit going on. Baked went into the fucking building. Shit got completely fucked. That's what happened. And the reality is, you were grandstanding with all this stop the steal shit, and then the reality hit you, and then you didn't know what to fucking do because you're a child. Panicked and shit went fucking sideways. That's what happened. There you go. About me, it's about America first. And like when I was out there during Stop the Steal, that it's was not like... about me. It's about America first. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not. It's not about Nick. It's it's about America first, guys. So I just uh, googled myself on Kiwi Farms. So here's some posts. Uh, Luke Ford was a prominent journalist of the porn industry in the late 1990s. He would sometimes sleep with porn stars, one of the porn actresses he slept with, Kendra Jade. Admitted to him that she was sexually abused as a child, would disassociate. She'd see herself outside of her own body while having sex she would view herself as though she were watching from above and she said you know virtually every porn star is like this that's what she told me and uh, another post i'm not a fan of luke ford he's always been a guy who enjoys being on the fringes he wears out his welcome every few years so he bounces from fringe to fringe i don't think he glows at all the only reason why ford hasn't been totally deplatformed yet is because he's jewish so speaking of ford he glows to me who goes from being the son of the leader of the Seventh-day Adventists to the internet's most famous porn blogger to Orthodox Jewish convert to nationalist sympathizer, bringing a lot of the online right disparate branches together through his show and publicizing without being suspected. It's also very telling to me that he abandoned doing dissident streams right once uh, Trump was decisively out of the picture. Yeah, when situations change, I, I change with them. And then uh, someone else says that uh, I, I introduced him to Nick Fuentes. Now, Luke Ford used to heavily show the Irony Bros and Nick Fuentes going as far as having a regular from the Irony Bros, Joe the Boom, as one of his co-hosts on his own stream, letting anyone else affiliated with them appear on stream at will, bringing up the Irony Bros, now funny you thought they were, speaking of Fuentes as though he were a political genius prodigy. Well, I spoke of Fuentes as someone who is a brilliant communicator. He is really good at what he does. I never thought he was a deep thinker on politics. Also, I have found much of the Irony Bro content that I, I consume just absolutely hilarious. But uh, this poster says, it was due to Ford's constant gushing and overselling of Nick Fuentes as the next big thing, leader in the distant alt-right. I, I don't remember ever doing that. I just said that Nick is entertaining and seems generally a happy guy and uh, seems, compared to other people in the, the alt-right, much more... Uh, normie-friendly, and uh, much less antisocial. But as due to Ford's constant gushing and overselling of Fuentes as the next big thing in the distant right online politics, and I originally ever started thinking about Fuentes, whether he was just a plant ventriloquist dummy for the unknown, possibly glowing entities behind the scene, and he went on the 10-hour catboy date. Speaking of Ford, he goes to me. Okay. Let's get a little bit more here from PVP. Is it... Is it Nick about fucking saving Trump? And so we were all out there and we all knew what we were doing. We all knew the stakes there. And it's in retrospect, it's did anyone really know the stakes of going into the Capitol building? No, I'm pretty Nobody sure. thought that that was going to happen that day. Yeah. A lot, a lot of the people thought that they were invited in. A lot of them thought that the president had ordered them to do it or that Nick had ordered them to do it or that Alex Jones or whoever the fuck their leader was wanted them to do it. Somehow all of the leader's hands remained clean as they were the Judas goats leading their followers to captivity. 
including Trump. I'll never forgive this. It was the biggest betrayal ever of the movement. And everybody involved in it should be fucking ashamed of themselves because there are still- Yeah, seriously, it is a black eye for Trump. So when Trump was elected, I was like 99% excited. And then during his four-year term, you know, my support went down to maybe 60% excited, definitely preferred him to Joe Biden. But what he did claiming the election was rigged and then essentially heading, handing the two Georgia Senate races to the Democrats by discouraging people from voting by constantly saying that uh, the vote was fixed. And then Trump did instigate January 6th. And what, what Trump did was, was terrible. And he really besmirched his legacy in his last couple of months in office. Still to this day, guys, in solitary confinement. His only crime was that they did what they thought their leaders... In retrospect, do I see the antisocial nature of Nick? Yeah, I, I think I, I did uh, over time. I don't think I was ever as adulatory as, of Nick as that, that post uh, portrayed. Now, compared to, say, Richard Spencer, 2015 to 2018, Nick hasn't been that antisocial. So it's all about compared to whom. There is something about going online and doing what I'm doing right now that tends to lead people down a bad path. So I use as a guiding principle that I don't allow my live streaming to hurt my life. I don't consciously do things that could hurt my real life online. I shape what I do online around my real life rather than shaping my real life along what I do online. So it used to be when I was blogging for a living, when what I was doing online was my primary source of income, then I, to a degree, shape my real life around my online life. But over the past few years, I shape my online life around my real life. But what happens when you do the live streaming and you get an audience and you get applause by telling people what they want to hear, right? That's how you build a big following. You tell people what they want to hear. You play the biggest hits, right? In, in, in rhetoric, in arguments. You give people the arguments and the rhetoric that they want. So you're feeding an audience like a whore takes care of a patron. What happens, you develop an audience and you get an exaggerated sense of your own importance when your importance depends entirely upon providing the audience what it wants to hear. So the biggest rabbi is the same thing. The biggest rabbi in Orthodox Judaism, if he suddenly came out and said that he was, he was a Zionist, he would lose his following. So he'd go from being the most powerful Orthodox rabbi in the world to not ranking in the top 500 Orthodox rabbis in the world simply because he came out in favor of Zionism and then lost all his Haredi, meaning traditional Jewish base of support. ...wanted them to do. It's unsurprising that something like January 6th happened because, you know, we're out there saying like the election's rigged. And so we, in a sense... Right. When you're out there saying the election's rigged, you're predisposing people to really bad outcomes. You're predisposing people who are naive and gullible to ruining their lives. Now... If someone ruins their life on January 6th or some other day, that's primarily on them. But you play a role in preparing the ground for that kind of destruction by, by beating out those lies and that rhetoric and that nonsense about uh, voter fraud decided the 2020 election. Right? There's absolutely no evidence for that. You push that line, then you're allowing people to let go of any moral scruples, any legal scruples. Right? If you convince people that the election was fixed, then people go, well, game on. There are no limits to what I'm going to do in response, which leads people to make a lot of bad decisions. Understood like what the significance of that. Like, what I mean by that is when you, when you have lots of people protesting the stolen election, 
like the government doesn't like that. And so in other words, like we knew we were taking some kind of a risk there, but it was for the greater good. And like, obviously you see within- Yeah, there are a lot of risks that uh, certain people can take with comparatively little risk. So for example, someone with you know medium or above intelligence and self-discipline can have a reasonably active uh, sex life with various partners and not destroy his life and not destroy the lives of other people. But someone- in a less advantageous position, someone with less discipline, less intelligence, say fewer resources, can absolutely destroy his life by screwing around. So there are all sorts of vices that the upper class and the middle class can often participate in that if participated in once by someone in the lower class, someone with fewer resources, less intelligence, less discipline, will absolutely destroy his life and lives of countless people around him. So just because January 6th didn't end Nick Fuentes' life, didn't dramatically destroy it. Instead, it was another feather in his cap, I assume, is his attitude. That doesn't mean that it wasn't incredibly damaging to hundreds of other people. You perhaps have fewer resources, less intelligence than Nick. Inflation with illegal immigration, war with Russia, like it was a worthwhile cause. If there was even a small chance that we won back then. Yeah, it wasn't a worthwhile cause. It was a stupid cause. It was a, a false cause. And you ruined, no, you played a role in hurting the lives of thousands of people. A role. Not, you're not 100% responsible for other people. I'm not even sure you're 70% responsible for others. But you're definitely more than 1% responsible. It would have been worth it. And that's all there anybody was, was no thinking chance. about. So, you know there was zero chance. Zero chance. Anybody who True. had any understanding of how the government worked, or elections worked, or the legal system worked, knew that the fucking election results would not be overturned. The only way would have been like a military coup to overturn the results. Trump didn't have the support of the military. He Nick didn't have the actual like fucking people to overthrow the government. So it was doomed from fucking day one. And they knew it. They led them there and fucked them over. And it's disgusting to me. I'll know this. We're out there and he's out there too on the sixth. And the chat says, look, normal people, when they hear the elections are rigged, they just don't bother with voting anymore. It's only the extreme unstable ones that go stormy voting. Sure. But uh, people who don't bother voting... That's probably what gave control of the United States Senate to the Democrats. That's what turned over two U.S. Senate seats to the Democrats. Like Trump running on a platform of Republicans shouldn't vote anymore is just a terribly destructive platform for Republicans. So Trump was always going to be a dangerous candidate, you know, dangerous to himself and to others. And he was dangerous and he was incredibly self-destructive. And he did come with a big price. He was a terrible at running things. You know, he, he was a bad leader in many ways. He did many good things. In addition, he got three Republicans on the U.S. Supreme Court. He dramatically cut down on immigration. He enacted policies that led to rising real wages for those who didn't graduate from high school and who'd been left, you know, left behind over the past 50 years. So Trump did a lot of good things, a lot of bad things. I increasingly came to recognize over the four years of Trump's reign how many of the left wing and how many of the centrists and how many of the the official Republican, traditional Republican criticisms of Trump were, were indeed accurate. And then, of course, it gets hot. You know, January 6th happens, and then, yeah, the feds do come down, and the persecution starts and all that. And it's like, oh, I... I'll just Next is the goal. And uh, the chat says these irony bros seem miserable. Yeah, they seem miserable now. Uh, four years ago, they seem to be having a good time. So a lot of things that we can do and have a great time online, but... We don't know it. 
we're having a laugh and we think we're on top of the world and you know we feel great we feel powerful and we feel excited and we're building connections with people but we're ingraining all sorts of negative habits that will wear us down and be disastrous it's like with working out so you can max lift like extraordinary levels of weight if you cheat if you cheat on your technique but when you do that you're ingraining bad habits that will cause injury and will limit your workout effectiveness and damage your health so if you are doing a workout where you're only ingraining bad habits even though you may be oh wow i lifted this amount of weight this number of times that's fantastic i feel amazing yeah but you more deeply ingrained negative habits you more deeply ingrained compression habits you more deeply ingrained muscular interference habits that will cause you pain and health problems and all sorts of problems down the line so you can feel on top of the world like irony bros were four years ago and not even realize that you are ingraining habits that will hurt you down the line so i don't like it when people online say oh what happens online doesn't matter yeah what you say right now it matters you're forming habits things you say in chat things i say right now right they they form neural pathways and you take out into the real world everything that you say and do online so everything you say everything you do affects you every choice you make even if you're all alone in a room whether you choose to watch tv or to read a good book or to look at pornography everything you do even when you're completely alone will affect you and therefore will affect other people boy he's been he's been yeah he's been waiting a bit been, he's been andy how long till you turn on ppp uh probably a month when the, when the money when the money runs when, out. when the money runs out i'll betray him i'm gonna yeah. backstab him uh and it'll be fun it'll be a fun arc you know end of season five there when warski betrays then we'll do the reunion in another year so it's really hard to keep up <laughs> partnerships in this game because as live streamers you're bouncing off each other and there are just so many ways to misunderstand someone else and generally speaking to keep any kind of friendship or relationship going you have to have at least like four positive interactions for every negative interaction. And at any time you could have a misunderstanding or a sharp, sharp contrast of opinion with someone. And then you start heading down a negative spiral and the, these online chat partnerships break up very quickly, very easily. It's, you know how they shoot. You know how it works. It's, this is how, how it works there, Nexus. And then he says, a uh, question for you, uh, PPP. From this point onward, I'll be keeping a list of the lore you lie about for e-drama. I know your M.O. Chat will win, right. not you. And he dabs. He dabs on you. Right. Uh, that's like okay. three or four donations for him to say that. There you go. Good there's, for him. There's you your know. answer, answer uh, next. <laughs> I, I'm lying about the lore there. You know? I'm not picking up anything that Andy Woski and PPP are doing that are, that's going to significantly hurt them in real life. I mean, they seem to be on a good trajectory. They seem to be the voices of common sense. They both, you know, seem to be in a good place, coming from a good place, and they seem to be doing good shows and good work that are not antisocial. You're not going to watch these shows and, you know, necessarily go down a bad path. These shows don't seem to be leading people down a bad path. So PPP and, and Wolski should feel good about what they're doing. It's not antisocial. Sometimes, sometimes I make a mistake because I misremember or whatever, but I, t I try not to lie about the lore unless it makes it really, really funny, okay? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> there you are, uh, Nexus. Hope that answers your questions. Okay, that's going to do it for tonight. Take care. Bye-bye.